Welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics Completionist podcast. I'm your host, Nick Byers. Episode 5. Episode 5, we're going to be dealing with uh, September 1939 through November 1939. And the comics that we're going to be covered uh, covering are Adventure Comics number 43, Action Comics number 18, Detective Comics number 33, Adventure Comics number 44, Action Comics number 19, Detective Comics number 34, Adventure Comics number 45, and Flash Comics number 1. That's right. We're getting into the good stuff, everybody. Things are about to get more superhero-y, more out there than they have uh, currently. Because currently, the most powerful people we have are Zatara and Superman. Uh, And Superman can't even fly yet. He's mostly just uh, jumping, punching people, running fast. Uh, stuff like that. He doesn't have frost breath or laser vision or flight or anything like that. But we're about to get into some really kind of out there stuff with The Flash and Hawkman and Johnny Thunder. So we're getting we're getting into the what's known as the Golden Age. So first, before we get into all that great stuff, let's set the scene. Uh, September 1939 to November 1939. And I'm realizing... That last episode, I covered a lot of September and October of 1939 um, because I was going off of cover dates uh, of those issues rather than the actual release dates. Uh, so that's my bad because the cover dates are so you know different than the actual release dates. Sometimes they get released um, months before, like Flash Comics number one, for example, uh, is released November 10th, 1939, but it's got a cover date of January 1940. So it was on the shelf for a long time after its release uh several months so but let's set the scene um october 8th world war ii is of course going to be a big thing in these for until you know 1945 uh germany annexes western poland on october 8th this is you know its first actual land grab that it it does in the um in the war and it'll you know spread even further to to places like austria and stuff like that uh, and the czechoslovakia and, and the Czech Republic, sorry, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, I'm about to butcher this because it is uh, very Polish. Piotr, Piotro, Tribunalski, Tribunalski ghetto, the first Jewish ghetto in Nazi-occupied Europe, is proclaimed in Germany-occupied Poland. So, uh, the Jewish ghettos, if you don't know, were areas of a city that Jewish people were allowed to live. This is before um, a lot, most of the, the Jews in Europe or in Nazi-controlled Europe were uh, trained and trucked and transported out to internment camps um, where they were you know, systematically dehumanized and tortured and used for scientific experiments. At this point in time, they're still allowed to live, um, but they're just only allowed to live in certain parts of certain cities. Uh, so these are Jewish ghettos, and there are many of them in Nazi-controlled territory. Uh, October 22nd, in the first televised NFL football game for all you sports, all, the, all you sportos out there, um, it is broadcast uh, between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Philadelphia Eagles. The Dodgers won 23-14, and it was played at Ebbets Field. Ebbets Field no longer exists, I don't think, or not that I've heard of. Um, and the Brooklyn Dodgers also aren't a football team. So the Dodgers are a baseball team. That's weird, isn't it? That they kind of like moved 
Unless they all of the Brooklyn sports teams were named Dodgers. Hmm, that'd be something to look into. Interesting. Uh, November 3rd, the U.S. Congress, in its um, you know bid to stay neutral in, this, in, in World War II, it signs the Neutrality Act, of, or amends the Neutrality Act of 1937, repealing the embargo on arms to belligerents, uh, but placing sales on a cash-and-carry basis. Um, this is to avoid a repeat of a situation that happened after World War One, when Britain and France uh, found a lot of difficulty making war debt payments to the United States. So uh, cash and carry means you got got money up front or, or no munitions. So, you know, you can't buy it on credit and then pay it off after the war. Because uh, if you don't know, wars are really expensive. And uh, no matter what country is involved you know no matter who's the winner or the loser those countries have a lot a lot a lot of expenditure and a lot of debt at at the end of any war uh so that was a way for the u.s to be involved without being involved uh and for a way to for munitions manufacturers to get their money uh november 13th british soil was bombed for by the germans for the first time during World War II, uh, the Shetland Islands, luckily, nobody was killed. doesn't say if anyone was injured, but probably, maybe not. Uh, and then finally, November 16th, it goes a little bit further than the release dates of the comics that were uh, covering, but I thought that this is such a fun little tidbit that I would include it. Uh, November 16th, Al Capone, uh, Scarface, the original one. Uh, is released from federal custody after serving seven and a half years of his 11-year sentence for tax evasion. Uh, Capone was suffering heavily from paresis, and upon release, he immediately went to a Baltimore hospital for treatment. Syphilis. He had had syphilis, so uh, he was going insane. That's what happens if you don't treat syphilis um, as soon as possible, as soon as you find out. So, you know, get regularly checked and um, always use precautions. Let's move on to the first comic that we're going to be covering, which is Adventure Comics number 43, uh, starring Sandman. Uh, Released September 14th, 1939, uh, with a cover date of October 1939. The story is written and drawn by Bert Christman, and Bert is having a tough time lately. Last Sandman story, if you'll remember, was all about planes and the Sandman and his two pilot buddies flying planes to thwart another plane, attacking another plane, and just wasn't a very Sandman-y story. Well, this one's even worse because it involves Sandman in all of a... In, in, let me think. Uh, let me just count real quick. Like three panels. Three panels Sandman is in it. Maybe four. Uh, so let's... Let's go through it. So we, we see in where we, we come in in media res. We see Wesley Dodds. He's standing on a beach. He's holding a woman who has collapsed. She's got an arrow in her shoulder. And we're informed that Wesley is on vacation in the South Seas. And he was flying his plane because, as we know, he has a plane. He has flight experience through the Navy. That's some good uh, continuity of, of backstory for Wesley. Uh, he was going to fly to this lonely island, maybe to just hang out on the beach, maybe go swimming, uh, enjoy some coconuts, some natural free coconuts. And uh, when he lands, uh, this woman runs out of the forest and or jungle. Sorry, it's jungle, not forest. It's different. And she passes out in his arms after being hit by an arrow. He pulls out a gun, shoots two uh, native people, calls them savages, of course, savage bowmen. Uh, and then he tends to the wounds of this woman 
and puts on his Sandman mask for some reason. Because, uh, I mean, I guess because this is a Sandman story, so you got to have the Sandman mask. Uh, then that's, that's all we see of Wesley uh, for the majority of the comic. It's only six pages. These early Sandman stories are very short. But uh, that first, so that's three panels right there of Sandman. Wesley Dodds. We then go to the other side of the island, and we meet this group of uh, businessmen, people who are setting up an, 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 an industrial site of pearl diving. Uh, pearl, you know, getting pearls from the from the bed of the ocean from oysters and stuff, clams. I'm not sure which oysters, I think, make pearls. Maybe both. I don't know. We're uh, informed that the, the head of it, uh, his daughter Australia, um, quite the name, has gone for a walk, and she's been gone since noon. Uh, so she's been gone for several hours. Now, he is either a very bad father or he's very he's very busy being a businessman, setting up a pearl diving business on this island. Uh, so Canute uh, and Piper, two of the men, go out into the jungle to look for her. We learned that Canute, uh, uh, K-N-U-T-E, is uh, kind of with Australia, or they're married, or they're going steady. You know, she has his letterman jacket. They're walking through the jungle, and they're yelling for Australia. Australia, Australia. No sillies. You're in the South Seas, but not quite at Australia. Uh, and some of the native people uh, of this tribe uh, get the jump on them and take them captive. And it is revealed that this man named Red Hatch, who is a, another kind of competing you know, industrial guy, has convinced this tribe to work for him because he's going to try to get... Um, these guys off of those these pearl beds in order to get at them himself and make you know the money so red hatch he informs them that he's going to take his compatriots this tribe and use them to kind of assault the homestead not homestead um base of the the pearl divers and canute and piper they get to watch while being captive they're tied up Back at the camp, Nelson's Pearl Harbor is what it's called. Sorry, I completely missed that, um, missed saying that. Nelson's Pearl Harbor, they hear war drums. And so they, you know, kind of barricade this A-frame house and get, you know, as many guns as they can. And they're like, oh, there's, you know, 200. Um, they call them devils, of course. Um, and there's only 14 of the men who work at Nelson's Pearl Harbor. Flaming arrows are shot. The native people are, they're going to win uh, just because of sheer numbers. Although a fortified position, defense is, is always fewer losses than offense. But luck would have it that uh, a plane kind of buzzes them flying really low uh, over the over the camp uh, and drops flares. After the flares are dropped, Canute, um, using racism, says the bird, the great bird god is angry with the, the native people because, you know, they're they're. I guess stupid um, in this comic. Uh, then some some knockout gas, choking gas is dropped from the plane. the The native people turn on Red Hatch for you know getting them, getting their sky god mad at them. Wesley was the one in the plane, obviously. He lands with Australia. He then tells Nelson and the men at the Pearl Harbor to tell the native people that the Sandman will return and punish them if they continue to war against the white man. Tell them that their faintness will leave them with no ill effects if they are good. So just a little bit of uh, internalized 
racism there. Um, not really hard to read through those lines. And they're all like, whoa, this is so weird. What a weird guy. And then he just flies away. And that's the end. Hey, Bert, were these stories meant for somebody else? Was this story and the story before meant for somebody else? I, I Hey, I, I get it, you know. If if it's true, if that's how it is, and you just had to get these pages out, and they are like, we need a Sandman story, and you're like, well, I've got this story, and they're like, it's fine, that'll be that'll be perfect. We gotta get this book out. So I get it, you know, but um, these aren't Sandman stories. No offense to Bert, he's one of the creators of Sandman, so I mean, he would, I guess, understand his creation better than other people. Him and Gardner uh, Fox. But, like, that first story, that first Sandman story in Action Comics number 40, I think it was, that was, like, that was peak. Like, from all the other stories that we've covered, that was, like, peak Sandman. Dark, noir, uh, sneaking around, being a detective, knocking people out with knockout gas, wearing a gas mask. That's, like, mm, that's, like, the piece de resistance of these early uh, Sandman stories. And these last two have just been bleh. Like, they haven't been Sandman. They could have just been any nondescript guy. In They could have been, like, Slam Bradley stories or something. Um, but, so, yeah. Uh, thumbs down on this story, I will say. I'm, I don't do ratings, but uh, thumbs down on this one. Not a big fan. So, let's move on. And what we'll be moving on to is Action Comics number 18, starring Superman and Zatara. Released... September 28th, 1939, with a cover date of November 1939. First up, of course, as always, Superman, written and drawn by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. This one involves Superman stopping some blackmailing uh, against a, a politician, a senator, uh, presumably represents Metropolis or wherever Metropolis is, or the state, or maybe he's local. Seems... I don't know, it's never said. But so he gives, the senator gives a speech and he's driving home and a woman who is drawn exactly like Lois Lane except she's wearing a scandalous red dress with you know spaghetti straps showing a lot of skin, which is how the comic portrays that they she is bad. So she stops the car that the senator is driving in. So the senator gets out of his car and asks her what's wrong. She says the guardrail didn't hold and she, her car plunged down into, you know, some ravine or something, and luckily she jumped out in time. Uh, she's lucky to be alive, and he says, being the nice guy that he is, dr will drive her to town. And she's like, oh, thanks. Uh, and as they're driving, she breaks a, a small vial, uh, some sort of knockout gas. Everybody in comics has access to knockout gas or choking gas. It's just, it's it's right there next to the cereal in the grocery store. You've got your you've got your Cheerios, you've got your Frosted Flakes, you've got your knockout gas. So she knocks the senator out and swaps places with him, drives him to a, a notorious roadhouse uh, called the Wayside Inn. Not as not fancy or anything, but this one's notorious. So maybe some illegal things are going on in this this roadhouse. So they these people get him inside. Uh, and then it cuts away to the next morning. Clark and Lois, who is drawn just like the other woman, who we do know the other woman, the woman in the red dress, is named Trixie. Um, and, and her and Lois are drawn exactly the same. That has nothing to do with the story. That was just something I noticed. Um, I guess black-haired women all look 
the same to Jerry and Joe. There's this sort of like setup scene where Clark is heading to this news tip that he got, and he wants the woman's the female slant from uh, Lois, and so Lois comes along, and it's it's pretty vague about what is happening, but the woman that they were sent there to like that they got the tip about. Yeah, it says, please don't put anything about this in the papers. I must have been mad. If this got out, my husband would be ruined. We don't know what this woman did. Uh, let's just say she went streaking. She ran down the street with no clothes on, um, and they put her in a sanatorium for it or something. Who knows? But we see one of the reporters that are there. He's writing it down, and he is named Gene Powers. He's a gossip columnist for what's known as a yellow tabloid, the Morning Herald. Now, uh, yellow tabloid is um, it's like yellow journalism, like trash journalism. Think New York Post, clickbait articles and stuff. Um, but this is this is the stuff that he writes about. And even though she says, please don't put this in the paper, he does anyways, uh, which is to say that he is a bad uh, man. But I, I think it's just a journalist, kind of a journalist's job to report the news. Um, and I guess if you don't want something bad to happen and something to get printed in the news, maybe don't do whatever you did. But uh, we're supposed to think that the reporters that listen to the woman and don't print whatever she did in the newspaper are the good guys. Uh, I just don't think that that's how journalism works. But uh, so the next morning, uh, the Morning Herald has printed the story of that woman. And it's, all, it's kept incredibly vague. We don't know. have any idea. It's not important to the story. It's just incredibly vague about what she did. And, you know, Lois and Clark are like, oh, that Gene Powers, that rat bastard. And so they go to this restaurant that's patronized by the press. And Powers is there. And he's like, uh, that wasn't sporting of you, Powers. And Powers is like, yeah, neither is this. My fist. Clark ducks, pretending to be a coward as he does. And then also pretending to be a, a clumsy buffoon, accidentally elbows uh, Gene Powers in the chin and knocks him out cold. And then then Clark gets an assignment to interview the senator. It's not said why he's being interviewed, but we learn later in, in the story towards the end that the senator is running for re-election. So that is what it presumably is about. And when Clark gets there, he says, I'm a reporter from the dot, 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 and he's cut off by the senator. He says, step in. I, I didn't expect them with quotes to send you around so soon. And when they get settled into the parlor or the den or whatever senator's houses had back in 1939, uh, the senator, you know, suddenly gets really intense and he's like, please give me more time. You know, raising $10,000 right now is out of the question. And Clark's confused. He's like, I'm, I'm from the Daily Star, question mark. And then the senator quickly ushers him out of the house and says that he's busy and so now Clark is suspicious about $10,000 and, and the senator not wanting to talk to him after he learns he works for the Daily Star. Uh, and then, you know, after waiting around a bit because he's just kind of suspicious, Clark sees Gene Powers, you know, knocking on the door and being ushered inside the senator's house. Uh, so Clark kind of makes his way around the back of the building or back around the back of the house and uses his x-ray vision. At first, I thought that this was heat vision and he was melting the wall. And I was like, Superman, you can't do that. This is some guy's house. This is the senator's house. 
but it is x-ray vision. And so the next panel has, rather than just like a clear view of the room, it's sort of the less important details, so or like the mo- more important details of the senator and Gene Powers talking. So it is revealed that, that $10,000 was blackmail money, and Gene Powers and the Herald are involved with blackmailing the senator. And how they're blackmailing the senator is with uh, faked photographs with this Trixie and uh, the senator, and the senator looks like he's drinking a big bottle of alcohol, and Trixie's there, and she's dressed like she was dressed, which, you know, is not at all, you know, illegal, Or but he's married, obviously, and he's a senator, and, and this stuff isn't good. Um, I guess unless unless Trixie is a sex worker. Then, I suppose, since it is illegal, then that wouldn't be as good. The senator protests that he doesn't remember doesn't remember what happened after he gave this girl a lift, and then he woke up in his car later. Gene Powers isn't interested in that. He's interested in ten thousand dollars, so he's gonna. You better pay up, or or it'll be printed in the paper. The senator says that he'll have to think it over, and then we see Clark, and he says something kind of kind of buck wild. He says, "There's nothing I despise despise more than a rotten blackmailer." That means that he despises rotten blackmailers more than murderers, war criminals, puppy kickers, people who kick puppies. Uh, so I guess, okay, that's weird. That's a weird hierarchy of people to despise, but hey, Clark, it's your it's your list. But okay, so it's a job for Superman. Uh, so he, he, that night, he turns into Superman. So he breaks into Gene Powers' house and easily finds the safe, obviously, because he has x-ray vision, busts into the safe and finds uh, a list of all of Powers' blackmail victims. So the, he does this a lot. Then there's this scene where Gene Powers is trying to find a weapon to, to fight against this intruder that he hasn't seen yet, and he's looking for his gun, and he can't find it the one time he needs it. But then, luckily for him, he has an archery set hanging on the wall. So he grabs a bow, and he grabs an arrow, and he shoots Superman with it. Superman catches the arrow, and then just to show off, because Superman's kind of a show-off, he points out a sign across the street, uh, and there's a there's a bunch of bulbs on it that spell out a word. And he points at one, and then Superman shoots it uh, just, like, dead on. So green, green Arrow, just don't even bother. Superman's already got that. He's already an archer. Superman then does the classic Superman thing of threatening someone to leave town, uh, not, you know, going to jail for their crimes or anything, uh, but just leaving town. Because as long as you're doing crime in a different town, Superman doesn't care. Just keep Metropolis free of your crime. Superman then leaves. And uh, he's still keeping watch, though, because he, you know, doesn't trust Gene Powers. Gene Powers calls up uh, Hamilton, who is the publisher of the Morning Herald, and uh, heads over there to talk to him. He says, you know, someone's on to us. He tells him when he gets there that it's Superman, and ha- uh, Hamilton says Superman's just a myth. You're crazy. Uh, but Superman's hanging right outside listening. Uh, Hamilton then informs Gene Powers that the people that they hired to you know sort of fake those those photographs they want more money or they're going to you know tell they're gonna they're gonna go to the police they're gonna squeal as they say uh so gene powers heads out there to the wayside inn and superman follows and meanwhile hamilton is calling the senator saying do you have the money for us and he says no and so then hamilton begins the process of printing the photographs in the next morning's paper powers is there at the wayside inn talking to trixie and this unnamed guy uh, and they want more money, and Power says no. 
and then this unnamed man pulls out a gun, but Gene Powers is faster, and uh, he found his gun, so that's good. Uh, so Gene Powers shoots this guy, and he's about to shoot Trixie, but then Superman jumps through the window. Gene Powers attempts to shoot Superman. It doesn't work, of course. Uh, and then Superman punches Gene Powers into a wall. Having done done that, he jumps off to, to deal with the Morning Herald. And once he gets there, he tries to tell Hamilton to stop the presses. And Hamilton says, no way, Jose. And tells Superman that he's too late, that the first batch of papers are already going to be on the streets soon. And a thousand more are uh, being printed as we speak. And so now Superman's got to work quick. First, he deals with the trucks. Uh, they're about to drive out. And Superman stops it with one hand, picks up another one, and throws it back into the garage. And then Superman does his, you know, very famous trick that he did with the gambling and just destroys the means of production, destroys all the machinery that prints out papers. Hamilton is, is distraught. So Superman destroys presumably the entire factory because the, uh, the panel says the plant is a total wreck. Uh, Superman, people work there. Like, Hamilton sure is, is a bad guy. And Gene Powers, also a bad guy. They should go to jail for you know, extortion, which is illegal. You can't extort people. But destroying the factor, the newspaper plant, really, really hurts the average guy that works at this newspaper plant who's just trying to get by. So did you do a good thing? Yeah. Was it netly positive? No, not really. Um, but okay, Superman. Uh, Superman then destroys the photographic plates uh, that had the photos on it. And then we cut to a week later, and it's discovered or it's in, we're informed that the the senator has won re-election and Clark's articles were of great assistance so that is the superman story where superman puts a bunch of men out of work and then also saves a politician which like let's think about this did hamilton and gene powers really need to doctor evidence to get dirt on a politician i don't think so i think maybe they could have just done a little bit of journalism and they maybe would have found something hey just a little bit of an editing note from nick future nick uh there was a ton of dropout from my computer uh during the Zatara story so i am just gonna have to scrap the whole thing unfortunately i'm very sorry it wasn't a very good story anyways so sorry about that bye we're now moving on to Detective Comics number 33, released October 10th, 1939, with a cover date of November 1939. Uh, just, just a Batman story this time. As I've said last time, the Crimson Avenger is on hiatus at this point. He'll be back in, I think, three more issues. Uh, Detective Comics number 36 or 37, if I remember correctly. Uh, and the authors of this Batman story are Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Bob Kane. And this story is entitled, it's so entitled, um, thinks it's better than everybody. No, this story is called The Batman Wars Against the Dirigible of Doom. And I will say, this dirigible does look doom-like, but it looks pretty, actually pretty cool. I would, I would ride in this dirigible, um, especially now that, they're safer since the Hindenburg. Uh, we actually get something very, very cool and something that I think happened a lot quicker for Batman than it did for Superman, except no, I don't think it did. So we got a sort of 
bare bones origin for Superman, I think in the first issue of Action Comics. So never mind, that's impossible. But we do get an origin for Batman. Uh, so it, the legend of the Batman and how he came to be is what it's called. And it starts with a familiar scene, if you're familiar at all with Batman. Thomas Wayne, his wife, who doesn't get a name uh, right now because she's a woman, uh, and son, who we presume is Bruce Wayne, are walking home from a movie, 1930, well, no, 15 years ago, so 1924? Ooh, I don't even know what the movie would have originally been. And a man with a gun, you know, is mugging them. Uh, he wants the he wants the necklace from Martha, who doesn't who isn't named Martha yet, but her name is Martha. Thomas Wayne, being the brave guy that he is, tries to stop the guy. He gets shot. Martha starts calling for the police. She gets shot. Bruce is left unshot and crying and scared, and his parents are both dead. Days later, he's you know he's making an oath to himself and God and the world that he will avenge his parents' death by spending the rest of his life warring on all criminals. The rest of his life is spent studying and stuff for this purpose. He becomes a master scientist. We see him in, in a lab working with vials. He trains his physical body to perfection. And we see him doing a one-handed overhead lift with a, an old-timey dumbbell with round like ball shaped weights on each side very funny uh and he he also has the money so he's sitting and he's saying dad's estate left me wealthy i am ready but first i need a disguise and this is the famous scene where he's sitting in his parlor or whatever and the windows open and a bat flies in and he says yes it's an open an, an open an omen i shall become a bat and so he does and the batman is born and this, and he calls uh, and the panel because Bob Kane loves, or I guess Gardner F. Fox loves this, calling Batman a weird figure. And I guess that would be one of his, you know, monikers. Weird figure of the dark, avenger of evil, the Batman is born. We now cut to the future, um, 15 years after Bruce's parents are dead. I wonder how old Bruce was then. So if, like, say he's, you know, say he's nine when they're killed. When he starts becoming Batman, he's 28? No, no, that's, I'm bad at math, sorry. 24? That sounds plausible, right? You know? Yeah. He doesn't look 24. The drawings don't look 24, but there's not a lot of nuance to these drawings. Uh, but Bruce Wayne's just walking down downtown Manhattan, still working out of Manhattan. Manhattan. Uh, Gotham City has not been created yet. And up in the sky is a dirigible. A boy says, look, Mom, a dirigible. And uh, Bruce comments that it's a strange-looking ship, and it looks like a rocket ship. And then it starts to shoot red beams everywhere, and these buildings are like brought down, and people are killed, and and it's 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 awful. Uh, and the dirigible then announces, "We come to rule the world. Do not resist us, or the rays strike again. We, the Scarlet Horde, warn you." So Bruce is at home, and he decides to do some research to figure out who could be behind this. Uh, and in his files, he has a newspaper clipping because he, you know, clips at every, you know, important newspaper article that he finds. And it says Professor Karl Kruger, released from insane asylum, suffered from Napoleon complex, now working on new type of death ray. Not sure why that would be just like cool. And I don't know if this is like notes that Bruce wrote down or if this is what the article says. But if the article says that this 
guy who was recently released from an insane asylum is working on a death ray. I feel like that should be brought to the police, but maybe it's notes. But also, why wouldn't why wouldn't Bruce bring that information to the police? So this is a job for Batman, and Bruce puts on his Batman garb, uh, gets in his super long fronted car. Like you, uh, if you've never seen pictures of this car, um, I recently posted one to the Instagram. It has the longest front of any car I think I've ever seen. Like the front is one car length in in and of itself. Uh, it's huge. So Batman drives to Kruger's residence and as is as is becoming a tradition in detective comics batman stories he has to comment on where he's going to park his car and he says in one comic the car will be safe here where no one can see it good i'm glad i'm really really glad batman that that no one will see your car and i am noticing in this panel as well that there is a little tiny the um the hood ornament is a bat i i guess it's not just a regular car it's got a really long front because it's high powered and it's got a little bat symbol so very batman i just wish it was black make it black like batman's you know entire thing and then and then a weird figure races through the night batman of course he swings up onto the onto dr Krug's home and there's a a meeting going on in this room and inside this room we see just multiple pictures of napoleon uh just uh, he's got one on the wall he's got one on his desk he's got one on another wall of the same room and basically, he has uh, brought together himself and three other great scientists to become the Scarlet Horde. And he's asking if their army is ready. And they have 2,000 strong, and they're just waiting for his command. And in two days, the death ray is going to strike again. And during the panic, the men are going to loot the banks, get all the money to build more dirigibles of doom to take over the world and then we see Karl Kruger for the first time and all these pictures of of Napoleon all over the room uh Napoleon has his sort of famous hair somewhat famous hairstyle if you know what Napoleon looks like big like insane widow's peak like really really bad widow's peak and if you don't know what a widow's peak is it's where the middle of the the head grows hair but then it sort of makes an m shape with uh bald patches uh, I'll probably post a picture of this to the Instagram just because it looks ridiculous. He has styled his entire uh, hair and facade uh, after Napoleon. It's kind of funny. So he's going he's gonna to try to be dictator of the world, uh, but not if the Batman can stop him, which the Batman tries. Uh, he throws a batarang at Carl uh, Kruger, and Carl Kruger pulls the old ultra-humanite trick by having a barrier, an invisible barrier. This one of thick glass, not invisible metal, because... He's not that smart. He's not ultra-humanite levels of smart. Uh, but it's enough to block the Batarang. And then uh, one of the pictures of Napoleon opens and uh, someone pistol whips Batman. And they tie him up and there's a bomb that's going to go off in five minutes and kill him. And they leave him there. And Batman learned a lesson from his adventure fighting the monk, the, the vampires, last last issue. And he now has a steel blade in his boot for cutting things. He doesn't need to rely on broken glass. So he cuts his his bindings and he gets out just before the bomb goes off. And he continues on his way. He gets back in his car where, where it was safely parked. And then he drives to uh, Ryder, uh, who is one of Kruger's uh, lieutenants. He, he drives to his house. And he threatens him, and he says, I'm going to leave you here, but I'm going to be back to, to beat you up some more. 
And Ryder's so scared that he gets in his car and drives to their base where they're constructing dirigibles or, or constructing death rays and they have their army and stuff. And Batman follows him. Oh my gosh, I'm just noticing this. I, I, I didn't notice it when I was reading it the first time, but Batman's, Batman's using his Batplane now to follow Ryder, if I didn't mention that. And his Batplane, of course, has wings that look like a bat, but the front also has a little bat face on it. That's fun. That's fun. That's whimsical. I like that. I like that. I'll post a picture of it on the Instagram so you can see the fun little bat face where the propeller's at. It's like the propeller is spinning around the bat's nose. That's that's nice. I like that. So he follows Ryder to this base, and Batman does this thing where he breaks a glass vial. He loves a glass vial. He's a scientist that we, we've just learned, uh, so he loves making new compounds. And out comes thick black smoke that just kind of just hangs around. It's not blown away by the multiple propellers on the Batplane, so that's good. It's pretty pretty amazing smoke. Uh, and so now it looks like there's just like a black cloud kind of floating through the through the sky. And I should mention this: the sky is not cloudy. It's a very clear looking night. Uh, it's not mentioned that it's a cloudy night. We can see the moon. The moon the moon is huge. So we cut to presumably members of of the Scarlet Horde's uh, army. And one, the guy says, a black cloud, dot, dot. And the other one says, yeah, looks like rain, which I guess guards have always been stupid. So it's good to know that they, they've they been stupid since the beginning. Uh, Batman sets autopilot like he's done before, kind of shimmies down his rope. And he comes upon another one of Kruger's lieutenants talking to some, some of the army men. He gasses them, knocks them out, destroys all of the death rays, and is going to then destroy the dirigible with an axe, but he is then shot by Dr. Kruger, who comes out of a secret door in the wall. Uh, and Batman's laying on the floor, bleeding. Uh, he's, he tells a guard to watch Batman while he goes get goes and gets the last death ray that, that Batman thought that he had destroyed them all, but one was kind of furreted away, or like hidden away, uh, so that just in case, I guess. And then he comes back, and Dr. Kruger shoots Batman with the death ray, and his body disintegrates. Um, so that's the end of Batman. A good run. What did he get? Mm, six issues? Five? Six six or five issues? So that's a pretty good run, you know? A little mini-series. There's not a really coherent story throughout all six, but R.I.P. Batman. Just kidding, of course. Uh, Batman, uh, while Dr. Kruger was getting the death ray, knocked out the guard that was watching him and switched uniforms, or like switched costumes. So he was wearing the army uniform, which which covers your face, and the guard was wearing the Batman one. And he mentions that he was wearing later, and while he's patching himself up, he mentions to no one, to us, the reader, that he was wearing a bulletproof vest and stopped the bullets, so just a few flesh wounds, but he lost some blood. No, you need those blood. You need your humors all in correct balance. Um, so Batman works through the night, or Bruce Wayne does, sorry, uh, making some stuff in his laboratory. He's mixing, he's probing, he sprays the bat plane with a mysterious chemical, and the next day the dirigible attack is commencing. And Batman's there with the bat plane, He's getting the, the dirigible's attention by flying around. And the, the dirigible shoots him with uh, a death ray. It doesn't work. The the chemical spray kind of, you know, absorbs it or bounces it off or makes it inert. Uh, and then a plane comes out of the dirigible as Batman is 
dive bombing the dirigible uh, and Batman crashes in and makes the dirigible explode. Batman, of course, is safe. He jumps out and is parachuting down. And Kruger was the one in the plane. And and at this point, Kruger could get away. He could he could fly away and, and go into hiding and be fine. But he's just he he is so curious. And you know what? You know what curiosity did, right? It killed the cat. And in this situation, Kruger's the cat. He's got he's like the Batman. At least he's dead. But wait, is that someone with the parachute? I have to see if it's him. And he turns around and it is him. And what does Batman do? Takes his rope, lassos onto the plane and climbs up and uh, Kruger's going to shoot him. Kruger misses. And then Batman throws one of his classic gas pellets and Kruger goes unconscious. Now, I, I will say Kruger is flying in a open air biplane. Uh, kind of very, very reminiscent of Charles Lindbergh, that sort of thing. Um, so I'm not sure, again, just like with the black smoke from earlier, why the smoke doesn't just immediately fly out and uh, be ineffective. But it doesn't. And so the Kruger knocks out, gets knocked out and crashes into the harbor. Batman jumps out you know, before it hits the water. And Bruce Wayne is fine sitting, listening to the radio. It's, it is discovered, or it is, we're informed that Kruger has died and his body has been recovered, but the Batman's mysteriously wasn't. And that's the end. Pretty good story. I, I, I enjoyed it. The mention of the car parking, the weird figure, gotta love that. All those paintings of Napoleon, that was great. The next issue we'll be covering is Adventure Comics number 44, released October 12th, 1939, with a cover date of November 1939. Uh, this one, Burt Christman's not in it, or not the author. It's just a Sandman story, of course, as Ad Adventure Comics is at this point. Um, but Burt Christman is not the author or artist for this one, uh, and I think it's better off for it. Uh, the authors for this this issue are Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Craig Craig C R E I G Flessel, uh, and I think it's it's really improvement. Sandman is clearly drawing some, some attention uh, from from readers and from DC Comics and publishing because it's gone from the past few stories being like six pages being quite short to this one being around ten ten to twelve pages. Uh, so, so more in-depth story, more room for action, stuff like that. Uh, and I think the story really, really benefits from that. So let's get into it. The story is entitled The Sandman Meets the Face. So it's going to be, you know, a, a villain story. And I, I, think, I, think it's, it, I think it's a pretty good one. So Wesley Dodds is sitting in his parlor, probably drinking scotch, Smoking a pipe and reading the newspaper. No, he's reading a book. He's well-learned. Uh, and uh, a, a strange figure creeps in and opens the, his big window, his balcony window, and pulls a gun on him and says, Up with him, mister. But Wesley Dodds was already aware that he was coming in. And he recognizes the guy. It's Billy Winslow. It's a guy he used to, to swim and play together with uh, when they were kids in Hilltown. And it's like, oh my gosh, what? Uh, so Billy's fallen on hard times. He he went he went bad because you know maybe he doesn't have a trade or it, it's not mentioned. But he had to go bad and sticking people up and all that kind of stuff, underhanded stuff. And his sister Sue killed herself uh, when 
this man known as the face got a hold of her. They don't say how, but he got a hold of her and she killed herself. Billy informs Wesley that the face, no one's ever seen his actual face. No one knows what he actually looks like. He uses disguises and one would presume prosthetics uh, of some kind to change his appearance. And uh, Wesley's butler comes in, whose name is Feathers, uh, because as as the butler leaves, Wesley says, you may go, Feathers. Um, he informs Wesley that uh, a policeman is here to see him. And the policeman's here because Billy was seen, you know, creeping into the window. And Wesley plays it off as just a prank. And the policeman says, I'm afraid it's not okay, Wesley Dodds. You see, I, and he pulls out a gun, and the face. And he shoots Billy dead. And he wounds Wesley. And then the face makes his escape. A week or so later, a week, couple weeks, it, it doesn't really say. Uh, Wesley is recovering in a hospital bed. You know, to say that he didn't die, he's still alive, uh, and he was only wounded by the bullet. He then goes to the police commissioner, and he he's, he's being adamant with him, saying like it was a policeman who shot me and my friend, and the commissioner's checked, and none of his men could have done it. And and Wesley's like, of course not. He was just wearing a uniform of a policeman, and he wants to find out who. Uh, and the police commissioner gives Wesley Dodds the name of their uniform maker or manufacturer. Uh, but Wesley thinks it's probably not safe for him himself to be seen having an interest in it. Uh, so he becomes the Sandman. Doesn't become the Sandman. He puts on his Sandman costume and races over to this costume or uniform maker, manufacturer, and picks the lock, gets inside, and finds um, this sort of secret ledger. And he's interrupted, and he knocks out a guy with uh, his gas gun. Sprinkles sand so that, you know, any you know police or anyone will know who did it, the Sandman. Because as a Sandman, Wesley wants the police to think that he is a villain, I guess, maybe. I, I don't really know his motive behind the trademark of, of the Sandman, other than being like, I was here. In the opening sort of, like, description, it often says that he's at war with not only criminals, but at times it seems like the police. So it's kind of like it's kind of like the Green Hornet in that way, because doesn't the Green Hornet uh, often, like, portray himself sort of as a villain in order to kind of get closer to crime? Or maybe that's just the movie, which was pretty good, but not, not amazing. Um, obviously, they didn't make any more. And, I mean, I don't think everything needs a sequel. So, But back to that. Sorry for that Green Hornet-based tangent. Wesley finds the address for the owner of the shop. But before that, he's like, why need an alibi? Wesley needs an alibi. So Wesley goes to a, a popular club and pretends to be drunk and drinking. Uh, and a gossip col columnist sees him there. And the next day, he's written a... Uh, written an article or like a little blurb Wesley Dodds was seen you know drunk cavorting all around town last night so that when the police find out that the Sandman was doing some stuff and they won't suspect Wesley it's very smart it, and I'm, I'm glad they included it because oftentimes with other heroes like Superman in like specifically as we've seen they kind of brush off any sort of 
anyone finding out Superman's identity at this point. Um, it's it's an afterthought, and and every every few issues or whatever it'll be mentioned. But other than that, other times, Clark will just do things that humans shouldn't be able to do, and he's just like whatever. So I'm glad they I'm glad they included that. Gardner Fox was was good to do that. I mean, he's not known as a visionary for no reason. Am I right? Uh, so back to the Sandman. So it's the next night, and he goes to the owner of the costume. I keep saying costume. Uniform makers. He goes to the owner's apartment, and he you know picks the lock, breaks in, and in the closet of this guy's apartment is um, a, a bunch of a bunch of costumes. These ones are costumes because they're for the face with a note that says, meet the face at the warehouse at 1.30, take uniform back. We're not really told who these men are, but some men come up the stairs and they're like, second floor on the right, he left a note and these must be his assistants or something. And Wesley sneaks out of the apartment quickly and hangs from the window. He hopes it's not, he hopes they're not in there long because it's no cinch to hang onto the windowsill. They get the they get the un, the costumes and they start driving to the warehouse. Now this is something else that I think is really cool uh, about this specific Sandman story. So if you remember last episode when we were talking about Detective Comics, the first Detective Comics we covered last episode, uh, which was the the second part of the two part Doctor Death storyline, where Batman was tailing Doctor Death's henchmen and he was like in in the panel he was like. A foot, three feet behind him, and that's bad. That's bad tailing. If you've ever tried to tail anyone, um, not that I have, but I just feel like that's not smart tailing. So, the Sandman, he has the idea to tail them from the front. So he is behind them at first, and to not so that they don't suspect that he's tailing them, he passes them and then stays a little ways ahead, but then kind of watches their movements and what they're going to do and kind of you know does them first or just kind of watches what they do and then he knows where they're gonna go so he tails them to this warehouse he knocks out the guy that they left outside and he sneaks up onto the roof to look through the skylight we're then told some of the backstory of why the face wanted to kill billy winslow and his sister billy winslow and his sister sue they were involved with this Oklahoma oil well, uh, and the face kind of did all the things that he did in order so that they would be out of the picture because this was this this well was, in his words, hot. So it's, it's pumping out a lot of oil, so it's worth a lot of money. So his plan is for one of his henchmen to go and pretend to be a cousin because neither of Sue or Billy had any children. Um, so next of kin would be you know the next closest relative to them so presumably their parents are dead and the next closest one would be an uncle an aunt or a, a cousin so he's gonna the henchman's gonna go and be a cousin but the sandman jumps through the skylight breaks the glass it's a pretty cool scene very actiony he knocks out uh the henchman and then chases after the face and um he, the same man reads the instructions that the face was giving to his henchmen, but he knows that after reading them, that the face knows that he will have read them, so he has to change his travel plans. So, the through deductive reasoning, 
Sandman figures out that he can take this, the face can take a, um, a train car, one of those, um, I don't know what the actual title for them are, but in old timey prospector things, it's the two sided sort of seesaw mechanism that moves like a little platform on a railroad track. He knows that you can, the Sandman knows that you can use one of those to get to the mail depot at the airport and then get a pl plane from there to Oklahoma. So the Sandman chases down the face on this railroad track and drives onto the railroad track over this bridge and crashes head on into the little platform thingy that the face is driving, totaling the Sandman's car and crashing into the river, and also the face into the river. Uh, Wesley jumps out, um, kind of like that scene in Rebel Without a Cause, uh, before it crashes. And uh, the last thing we see is, and so ends the threat of the face. Oh, well, it was fun, dash, while it lasted. Which is kind of a very flippant way to take the death of someone. It's like, oh, it was fun, you know, being adversaries with that guy while it lasted, but now he's dead. Boo-hoo. Uh, I know he was like a villain and a criminal, but come on, still, still a person. Um, but that was, that's, that's Ad Adventure Comics number 44. I think a much better story than the last two. Just, it's, you can clearly tell that this is a pure Sandman uh, invention like uh, he wasn't just plastered plastered pasted into uh, a story that could have had any sort of faceless action hero in it and uh, I think it really really benefits from that uh, it's got the sort of aspects that superhero comics are beginning to have outlandish sort of villains with being really adept at something that makes them dangerous uh, it's really good. I really, really like it. Let's now move on to Action Comics number 19, released October 31st, 1939, uh, with a cover date of December 1939. Uh, Superman, Zatara, as always. Uh, I know I said I was going to stop saying that, but I can't. All right, I can't stop, and I won't stop. Miley Cyrus. So let's go into the Superman story. Superman, of course, for a long time, will continue to be written and drawn by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this Superman issue or Superman story involves uh, something that I guess is near and not dear, near and hated to all of our hearts and, and something that we can all relate to uh, a little bit. Uh, it is a plague that uh, kind of sweep, is sweeping through Metropolis uh, Metropolis is ground zero for a plague. And they do a little bit of foreshadowing in, in the first couple panels uh, that I don't think they've done in any of the past issues that I've read. So they, Clark is at the police station for whatever reason, and he overhears an emergency call that his ambulance is needed at this address, and he asks the police if he can go with. Not not typically allowed. Not I wouldn't say is a very normal thing to be allowed uh, for just a random... A civilian reporter to go along on a police call or an ambulance call but you know whatever he can go and in the second panel oh as the ambulance races through the streets it says bringing clark nearer to the beginning of one of his most startling adventures which i think is pretty pretty cool kind of get you get you ready for like something big coming and i will say it's a it's a good story i don't know if it'll have any lasting 
Well, it might. It could have some lasting effect on future stories. Uh, you'll just have to see to the end, now, won't you? So at this address, the doctor is puzzled and Clark is shocked because this man is just a mass of, of purple rotting blotches. It doesn't show it, obviously, because that would be too gruesome for comics at this point in time. In the future, they would likely draw it and so that we can see the horror of what they're seeing. Uh, the next day, or later that day, Clark's writing an article, and these two men come, and they are examined. They, like, tell him to stop. They kind of quarantine him and, and examine him, and he's completely healthy, and obviously he's completely healthy because he is an alien, uh, and he is immune to pretty, I believe, every single disease on Earth. Uh, he says, only thing that saved me was my super resistance to disease to himself. He says it in his mind. Uh, then we get scenes from Metropolis as the plague begins to sweep through the city, probably very reminiscent of the Black Death uh, or the 19... Oh, I always get this wrong. 1917 Spanish flu uh, that, that swept Earth um, and, and also through America uh, you know, over a decade previous to this point, or a couple decades previous to this comic's release but i mean still memories probably people probably jerry and joe have relatives or you know someone who who either lost somebody or they lost to uh the spanish flu um but this is on a completely like a hundred times scale because people are just dropping dead right in right on right on the streets you know it, it moves so quickly and so deadly wagons carrying the dead off very old school very very black death reminiscent of it uh, don't know why they're not using, like, big truck, because uh, cars exist. They're using a horse-drawn wagon. And then, uh, you know, as, as the days pass, we see Clark Kent sitting in uh, an apartment, in his apartment, with uh, a young scientist who is visiting him, Dr. Or doctor, I'm sure he's a doctor, Professor Henry Travers. And he has a theory about this plague. He hypothesizes that it is a resurgent of a middle-age plague very, I'm assuming it's referencing kind of an homage to the, the bubonic plague, the Black Death. Uh, and he thinks it is the purple plague, hence the purple blotches that uh, kill you and are noticeable. Uh, he knows of a book, a rare volume in uh, the, the Metropolis Library about the disease. And he asks Clark if he wants to come along with so that he could, you know, possibly print some of the information in the paper for... You know, the public good, a public service announcement. They get to the library and they ask to see the book because rare volumes, if you don't know how libraries work, are typically held in protected areas. The librarian says that they will have to wait because there's a man who, uh, an old man, who frequently checks it out, or not checks it out because you can't check out rare volumes, but he's frequently, he frequently reads it. Uh, the old man returns the book shortly. He thinks it's a very interesting read. Uh, and then he leaves. And Clark and Travers uh, read through the, you know, look through the tome. And they, they see that the symptoms are exactly the same. So they now have a running theory with a little bit of evidence backing it up that it's the Purple Plague. So they can begin creating an antidote or something, vaccine, something to, to lessen symptoms and make it more survivable. We then shift to a darkened sedan uh, that old man that we saw with the book he removes a mask and reveals himself to be any guesses 
You guessed right if you guessed the Ultra Humanite. He's back. He has grown back his horseshoe of hair. He no longer looks like Lex Luthor. Uh, he's still, you know, wanting to take over the world, but this time he wants to get rid of humans and then create his own master, I guess master race probably isn't a great phrase, but a super race of beings. Travers and Clark are talking, it seems to be days later, it's not informed, but uh, Travers has been conducting experiments with the help of the information they got from that book, and he thinks he's getting close to you know, isolating the what he calls the plague germ, and uh, he's going to use it to concoct an antidote. So that's that's good. That's great for everybody involved. Travers is working and working, and, and days later he comes up with it. He says, "Victory, the antidote. I found it. Uh, Eureka!" He calls Clark and tells him that he's he's done. He's he's protected his perfected his plague serum, uh, but the ultra humanite who we know has. Uh, a affinity for hacking into telephone lines and, and wire, wirelessly sort of tricking phone lines and stuff. He's eavesdropping. He's got a bug uh, in... Uh, he's The line is tapped, sorry. And he overhears Dr. Travers telling Clark this. So he sends a, a couple of thugs over there to to you know knock him out and kidnap him. What's weird is that he already knew that that's what Professor Travers was doing. Because if we go back, he says that in, back to the sedan where he's revealed to be the ultra humanite. He says that young scientist Henry Travers has been showing too much interest in that volume. We'll have to do something about that. And then he just doesn't do anything about it until he overhears that he's he's done it. If it was me, if I was the ultra humanite, if I was a supervillain with massive intelligence, I would have just uh, killed him before he even started anything. You know, I wouldn't have waited until he, he figured it out. And then he was on the phone telling someone that he figured it out and then went over, knocked him out and kidnapped him. I would have I would have killed him like that day. So I guess I'm just I guess I'm just smarter than the ultra human knight. I'm not. Um, but that's I just find that really dumb uh, for a supervillain to do. It's like, let's wait. And I understand. I understand the story implications of it. It wouldn't be a very good story. If it's like, well, Professor Travers is dead. I guess it could then be a murder mystery like who killed dr travers but then we've got the plague in the background and that's not a, that's a way too powerful b story that needs to be an a plot uh so but back to back to the kidnapping of dr travers clark obviously overhears it and he dons his superman uniform he we're, we see him untying his shoe in order to put on his other sh boots his, his superman boots and he rushes over to travers's apartment and he sees him being loaded unconscious into a, a vehicle. And the thugs shoot at Superman. Superman throws him around like they're nothing. But the a couple of them escape with Dr. Travers's unconscious body. They then realize that they're not going to outrun Superman. So they slam on the brakes uh, on the sort of cliffside area of the highway. There's a guardrail and stuff. So you know there's a, a drop off. And uh, they push Travers over the edge. They're like, okay, we got it. We killed him. And and one of them says to the other one, why didn't we do this days ago? And the other one says, I don't know. I just follow orders. Uh, no, they don't say that because they're thugs and they are dumb. So they, you know, they make their getaway and Superman jumps down the cliff super fast and grabs Travers, gets his hand onto the cliffside, grabs onto a sort of crevice and stops their descent and then basically runs parallel, like runs perpendicular to the ground up the side of a cliff, 
uh, saving Dr. Travers and bringing him home. We then shift to the ultra-humanite's lair, and his thugs are informing him that they killed Travers, but Superman was getting involved, and that's why they killed Travers. This is where Ultra-Humanite reveals that he wants the human race blotted out uh, so he can launch a race of his own, a race of Ultra-Humanites. But then what will he be called? Will he be like the Ultra-Humanite and everybody else are just Ultra-Humanites? I guess that could work. He's the, and they're just a. Like, I, if I was one of those people, I would just be a Ultra-Humanite, but he would be the Ultra-Humanite. I guess that works. Uh, Superman then is back in his apartment and Travers is calling him, has been repeatedly calling him to tell him about like what happened because Clark Kent, uh, is his friend and he invites Clark to see the demonstration of his serum tomorrow before his scientific society that he is a part of. The next day they're talking with another scientist at this demonstration, Dr. Greenlee, and he's he's a doubter. He thinks that Dr. Travers is a sensation-seeking opportunist. Dr. Travers says, well, I'm going to make you eat those words and this knuckle sandwich. Uh, and then they see the demonstration, and it doesn't work. Something went, something goes wrong, or something's wrong with the formula. Uh, all the other scientists are mean to Dr. Travers. They call him a faker. They, throw, they say, throw him out, and they boo him, and he runs away crying to his apartment. That evening, Clark's thinking, you know, he's, maybe he's at home and he's reading a book. Uh, and he's like, man, Dr. Travers was really down today. So he turns into Superman and rushes over there. And he finds Dr. Travers destroying all of his scientific equipment, all of his chemical equipment. And it's revealed that Dr. Travers was kicked out of, of his, his scientific society. So he doesn't want to keep, he doesn't want to keep working on his cure for the Purple Plague. And... That's pretty selfish of him, right? Like, oh, all of my nerd friends are being mean to me and they don't want to give, you know, I won't get recognition from my scientific society because I'm not in it. So I don't want to save Metropolis and possibly the world, human race. Like, come on, Dr. Travers. Like, stop thinking so much about yourself and notoriety. Uh, I guess you are a sensation-seeking opportunist if that's the only reason you were making the serum. Like... You don't get into making serums and vaccines and stuff for the notoriety or the money. Like, because, like, the insulin, the patent for insulin and stuff that, that helps people deal with diabetes was sold for a dollar. Like, because it just needs to be readily available. It's medicine. You know, it's breakthroughs that allow people to not die of, you know, deadly diseases or disorders in their body. Like, Travers is in the wrong here. He's being a big baby. And uh, Superman kind of shakes him around and says, knock it off slaps him a few times. Uh, he says, you know, remember, a lot of scientists, they achieved their results in the face of scorn from their fellow savants. So I, I don't know why he's like, he needs his recognition from his scientific society. He's been doing it all by himself. Like, I don't know, it's he's being a baby, and I hate him now. So he says, well, I can't even do these experiments anyways, because now that I'm not in my scientific society, this Forrester Chemical Corporation won't sell me these rare chemicals, which he needs to, to carry on his investigations. And Superman's like, I don't, I'll do crime. Well, I'll go get them. And so he, he jumps on over to the Forrester Chemical Corporation, uh, jumps in through the roof. He rips the, uh, the skylight out of the roof that was unnecessary just superman loves destroying property it's one of his favorite things it's it's protecting the weak 
being a, a symbol for justice and then destroying public property or his or not public property, just property in general are his top three favorite things to do. So a guard uh, is saying, oh, I caught you. You can't steal anything. And Superman's like, well, I guess you caught me. Well, too bad you can't hold me. And then he runs through the wall. He could have used a door. He chose not to. Uh, because like I said, he loves destroying property. And he brings the chemicals back to uh, Dr. Travers. And his hope has been restored. And he's now going to continue his work. Uh, and as Superman leaves, he's leaping through the sky. He gets shot with some sort of ray gun. And he's unconscious. And he is brought to the Ultra-Humanite's lair. Uh, the Ultra-Humanite then uses his massive willpower and, I guess, tele, um, tel telepathy. I didn't know that he was telepathic. Or maybe he's, he's just being like a master hypnosis, hyp hypnotizer. He hypnotizes Superman or, like, gets a mental hold on him with, like, this technological helmet. Oh, I, I suppose he's using the helmet. Duh, Nick. Stupid. Uh, he says that, you know, you're now, like, basically, you work for me now, and you're going to help these guys spread the Purple Plague. And so they're up in this sort of airship, and uh, one of the guys is ordering Superman to grab the vials and, and toss them out so they can break and spread the plague. But then Superman's like, psych, I wasn't hypnotized at all, and breaks the controls of the plane and lets it crash, even though, like, wouldn't that still spread it? I mean, maybe the fire would destroy the plague, but... I feel like that's still not... That's leaving a lot up to chance, I think. So Superman's escaped, and the Ultra Humanite is mad, and realizing that he was just pretending to be hypnotized. The next day, a boy collapses in the street, and everyone's afraid to help him because uh, they think it's the Purple Plague. It is, uh, because Clark is brave enough and obviously immune, picks him up and takes him to a hospital and a doctor says, yep, he's got the plague, and it turns out that this child is the child of Dr. Greenlee, the naysayer of, of Dr. Travers's serum. Clark then calls uh, Travers, and Travers has discovered his error from earlier, and he knows that his serum will work now. Clark turns into Superman, rushes the boy to Dr. Travers, and he has administered the serum. It works perfectly. The boy is returned to Dr. Greenlee, and Dr. Travers is reinstated in his scientific society. So that's great. Superman then busts into the Ultra Human Knights uh, base. He's not about to get off the hook this time. And he's about to blast Superman with that gun, that, that ray gun that he blasted him with earlier. But it explodes for some reason in the Ultra Human Knights face. And the last panel is Superman saying, dead well that finishes both the purple plague and the fiend who created it so i guess the ultra human knight is dead and we won't see him again sad he was pretty good a pretty good foil for superman's brawn and it was his brains but uh, he's dead and we'll never see him again because there's a rule in comics once you die you're dead there's never been a character that's come back to life so, but yeah, that's the Superman story from Action Comics number 19. Now let's move on to the Zatara story in Action Comics number 19. Uh, it's written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Fred B. Gardiner. This Zatara story is called Zatara, the Master Magician, and the Gorilla King. 
just out of nowhere, a gorilla comes into Zatara's hotel room. He's staying in a, a New York hotel room. We have no idea where Zatara's base of operations is. Is he living in hotel rooms all the time? Because that's got to get pricey. And I guess he did just make a million dollars that one issue uh, when he saved the ice caps. But God, that's expensive. And he's going to have a daughter eventually to support. You know, you can't be wasting all your money on hotel rooms. But so this gorilla comes into Zatara's hotel room and it's going to attack Zatara. And so Zatara turns it into a monkey. Tong comes in and he's like, he says, he says, me hear something, master. You all right? And yeah, Zatara says, oh, yeah, you know, there's this gorilla attacking me and I turned it into this monkey. Normal stuff for Zatara. Uh, there's another knock on the door, and in comes Ivan Meldoff, a Russian-American scientist, and he thought he heard a gorilla roar, and it frightened him. And so the first thing he did was go towards the gorilla noise that frightened him. And you know, I don't know why? Because, because he knows where the gorilla came from. That's right. It was the Gorilla King. Now, you may be thinking, the Gorilla King, that's probably Grodd in Gorilla City. No, Grodd does not exist yet. This is a different Gorilla King. There are going to be more than one. Uh, this gorilla king is actually a human being, but he's king of the gorillas. And these gorillas are humans that he put the brains inside of gorilla bodies. Um, he specifically says uh, some of his native peons. Uh, this man is named Honders, H-A-N-D-E-R-S, like Handers, but Honders. I'm assuming he's, you know, Nordic of some kind. Uh, he, uh, he has a base in Mexico, and years ago... Ivan Meldoff, he was searching for a lost Aztec city, as one does, as scientists often do, and he fell into a crevice. And uh, this man, Honders, found him and brought him to his home in this secluded valley, uh, kind of this valley surrounded by really high cliffs, um, and it's pretty much imp really difficult to get to. So Honders tells, you know, shows Ivan Meldoff his gorillas, that he has put the native peoples of Mexico's brains into because he's a jerk. And they're in cages, and he uses them as slaves. And then while Meldoff is staying there, one night uh, he's sleeping in, in presumably a guest room, and one of the gorillas comes in and seems to attack him. But Meldoff didn't trust, obviously, Honders, and uh, was sleeping with a gun. Uh, as you should when you're staying in a strange man's home who does scientific experiments on other humans. And he shoots the gorilla, and he escapes uh, that night and blows up the entrance to this valley. So in order to, to keep the gorillas and honders from going out into the world and doing mischief, I guess. But obviously they got out somehow, and they're coming after... Ivan Meldoff, and I guess maybe the world. It's not clear what the big plan is. A group of gorillas in firemen's uniforms, uh, they look quite comical, light the hotel on fire. And uh, in order to escape, Zatara makes the floor longer. So, like, the floor kind of, the floor and one wall shoots outwards from the hotel building, uh, like, a, like a diving board, sort of. Then he. He breaks and does a spell to make... He breaks the floor and, like, has it float and makes the gorillas fall to their death. They do that. Uh, and now uh, Meldoff and Zatara and Tong are going to go and defeat Honders. 
and b b before they can do that, Zatara wants to go get some information on this Honders. So he goes to the Explorers Club the next morning to talk to Buck Travis uh, to get some information on Honders. Uh, yeah, and Buck Travis is a is a font of information. He has heard of him. He uh, Honders is a renowned brain man, as they're called, otherwise known as you know, like a neurologist, neurologist. Uh, then he disappeared, but uh, Buck Travis didn't know he was in Mexico, but he presumes it's the same one. Uh, then Zatara goes to the police commissioner to see if there's any sort of criminal record on Honders. The commissioner doesn't know him, but he's heard rumors from Texas about gorillas robbing trains and banks. Uh, so I guess that's Honders' big plan. So he must he must just be using the gorillas to amass a fortune uh and i guess research uh i guess maybe to pay for his research uh the next day they've made arrangements to travel to mexico after zatara has gotten all of his research but meldoff is late uh so zatara travels through the spirit realm establishes a psychic connection with the with meldoff and finds him in this old building in the cellar he's strapped to a table but there's nobody else around Zatara then does a spell to uh, give Meldoff great strength in order to snap his bindings and then great speed to run to the airport. Uh, so he runs to the airport. Then they are flying through the air uh, in the plane to Mexico. And down below, they see gorillas robbing a train and all of its passengers of their finery and such. And then riding away on horses. Zatara wants to follow those gorillas on horses. And he attempts to go up to the pilot and make him follow them. Uh, the pilot says, no way. What are you even doing up here? The regulations from 9-11 haven't happened yet, obviously, so people can just walk right in the, into the cockpit. So then Zatara says, well, the heck with you. Uh, I'm just going to duplicate this plane and fly it myself, which begs the question, why would you book a flight in the first place? Why didn't you just make a plane up here or, like, teleport? I don't know. Gotta gotta use gotta use modern travel, I guess. So there's two planes now, and and in one is Zatara, Meldoff, and Tong, and they fly the plane, uh, chasing after the gorillas on horses. They land and follow the the gorillas into this sort of rocky valley terrain, and behind a waterfall is a secret entrance into a cavern, a secret cavern. They traverse the cavern, and inside they find a fortune. Just tons of bags with dollar signs on it, which is which means that it has money in it, obviously, because that's where you store money. Like, I'm sitting right next to my bag with a dollar sign on it. It's got my life savings in it. Um, it's not very big. It's quite small, actually. I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> but this this pile, it's it's big. It's it's big. Weirdly, some of the money is not stored in bags with dollar signs on it, so it's like, what, what's, what's even the point? They are looking through it, and so they figured out that he's using the gorillas to rob, or like they confirm, because they had already suspected, but they confirm that that's what Honders is doing. Then Honders appears on the wall in sort of a, uh, as Sataras has, a moving picture with sound effects. Uh, for some reason, Meldoff wants to find the projector he does and destroys it. Like, that's important. Uh, weirdly, Honders was able to communicate through the projector either that or it was a pre-recorded like threatening message which was like i'm just going to record this threat to to scare anybody that that finds my treasure which fair fair then they don't seem to know how to get out 
Uh, so Zatara melts the wall, and they're on top of a ledge. And the the caption says the trio finds themselves stranded up on this unclimbable ledge. And it's like, no, you're not. You have Zatara. Like, it's you're not stranded. You're not stranded anywhere. You could be buried alive, and if Zatara was there next to you, you'd be fine. And they are, because uh, Zatara gives them all parachutes. He makes parachutes appear. And this this next part's kind of funny. So Zatara melts a wall, makes parachutes appear, and Meldoff says nothing. Uh, as they're parachuting down, he says Zatara's an amazing man. And then in the next panel, Zatara is suddenly holding an umbrella, and Meldoff, this is this is where it's gone too far for Meldoff. He's like, but you didn't have that umbrella before. Like, that's broken him. Like, the fact that Zatara suddenly has a, a parachute has broken his mind, whereas melting a, a stone wall and making parachutes appear are just normal. So, but this umbrella is magical. It While Zatara holds it o- over his head, he is invisible. Um, he's done an invisibility trick before and didn't need an umbrella, so not sure why this time they're like, he's got to have something something to make it so he's invisible. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense, you know? Magic, magic needs boundaries, and you have to have this umbrella to be invisible. So he's walking around with this umbrella like he's a vampire, and it's sunny out, and he's invisible. He's walking through Gorilla City. There's gorillas going about their day, carrying big big jars on their head, uh, and he finds this chained, this like chain gang of humans, and they're being used as slaves for the gorillas, who are in turn also slaves for hunters. It's a slave hierarchy. The, the slaves have slaves. So Zatara, you know, goes to the place where they're, the human slaves are being held and appears and asks them if they want to, to get revenge on the gorilla, the gorillas, uh, and he arms them with swords and shields. Then all the gorillas are attacked and, and beheaded and uh, killed and stuff. It's it's actually quite gory for comics of this age because like last, you know, in the same issue, the the purple plague didn't Superman didn't show any of that. I guess I guess Fred Gardner is more okay with drawing gore. Um so Zatara sees Honders and he chases him after after him into this tower. Honders is going to release um, a big bangle tiger on Zatara, but he turns it into a cute little kitty. Oh, little kitty meow meow. Uh, and then Honders is going to flip a switch to blow up Gorilla City with everybody inside of it. But Zatara reverses the electricity, the flow of it. So instead of flowing inside the machine, it flows out of the machine into Honders. And we know this because Honders nicely says, I can't move. I can't move the switch. I'm being electrocuted, which is very polite for him to inform everybody around him and us, the audience, that he is being electrocuted. Uh, Very calmly as well. Uh, So then Zatara is like, I haven't done a murder in a while. So he's like, you're better dead than alive. And he says, in an hour, the the electrocution that you're facing will stop and uh, you'll flip the switch and, and blow up the city. And that's that's what happens. And then Meldoff says, good job. You're the only man who could have done this. Good job, Zatara. The world will forever be in your gratitude. Um, you know who's not in his gratitude? Me. Uh, not that that was the worst Zatara story I've ever read, but weird story. And Zatara stories are often weird. So let's just move on. You know, don't want to beat that dead horse. 
anymore, because I am not for animal cruelty. And we'll be moving on to Detective Comics number 34, released November 7th, 1939, with a cover date of December 1939. Uh, just the Batman story, as I've said in previous times. Uh, so it's, uh, and, and this one is written by Gardner F. Fox and Bob Kane. And this one is a bit of a, not weird inherently the story itself, but its place in, in the timeline. Not that the timeline is anything at this point. Um, these stories are all just, yeah, whatever. Uh, they happen when they happen. But this one specifically references a former story. And it places it before the last story we heard. The last story, the dirigible of doom and the, the Scarlet Horde and the Napoleon Man. This So the first little blurb, which I think Batman is one of the few comics, maybe the Sandman that we've read, that the there's always this little panel underneath the title. And in the Superman one, it always says the same thing, his little spiel about being um, a force for justice and, and champion of the oppressed, that kind of thing. But these the Batman ones kind of say what's going on or kind of set the scene. Uh, so this one says, The Batman, having rescued his fiancée, Julie, from a sinister figure named the monk sees her safely on board a boat for America. He is to follow her later when he when he becomes involved in a mystery, which obviously stops him from following her. Not sure why he didn't also get on the boat to America. You'd think he's like, oh, this will be nice of spending time together on a cruise across the Atlantic. But nope, he's like, mm, nah, I need to eat a baguette. Got to stay in France for a little bit longer. Must eat a whole baguette. So he's in France, he's in Paris, just kind of chilling, just vibing, you know. He's he's being Bruce Wayne, international playboy. And he thinks he sees someone as he's leaving his hotel, an old friend, Jed Farnell. And he turns and he goes and spins the man around and says, Jed! And it's not Jed. It's a man with no face. And I know what you're thinking. And this guy is dressed just like the question. I'll probably put it'll probably be one of the primo panels this this week. It's cause it's he, it's he's got no face he's got no mouth no nose no eyes and he's wearing a fedora and a trench coat that's that's the question if i've ever seen the question and i have seen the question both of them bruce wayne is shocked by this man with no face and the man with no face says i don't blame you sir uh i give you a shock i gave you a shock not having any face didn't i yeah and he's sorry and then the guy walks away and the bat all the batman has all the batman all bruce wayne has to say is well that's weird a man without a face. Hmm. And he's like, I'd look into this, but eh, I don't feel like it, basically. Uh, then we cut to a, a Midtown Hotel, Midtown Paris, I guess. I don't know what Midtown Paris is. But it's this woman, she's reading a letter, and she says, The Mark of Duc d'Arte. I don't know. I don't, I don't speak French. And that was probably awful to listen to, and it was awful to say. Uh, and it says, Master of the Apaches. It's okay. Um, and that she's doomed to die. So she runs out uh, of this hotel and calls for a taxi, and she jumps into a, a taxi cab, and inside is Bruce Wayne. And she's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't know you were in here. And he's like, oh, um, no worries. Can I help you? And then as you know, as they're talking, as, as she's about to explain herself, a dagger flies in and, and lodges itself in the back wall of this car. So they run off. And as they're running off, this woman is, you know, she's going to tell her story, but then she collapses just through, you know, pure fear of being killed, you know, possibly. 
and uh, she collapses into Bruce Wayne's arms, and this man, the faceless man, comes up and says, she is in mortal fear. Let us seek privacy. So they clearly know each other. Uh, and in back in the Midtown Hotel, Midtown Paris, they explain Charles is the faceless man. Charles Mayer. And this is his sister, Carol. And they were happy once, they say. That's nice. We were all happy once, right? For life and being an adult. Uh, but for them, it was before they met the Duc d'Orter. So they met this guy, the Duke. We're just going to refer to him as the Duke from now on, so I don't have to try and say his last name. At a ball mask or a mask ball or like a masquerade ball. He um, he fell in love with Carol from you know the first sight, as villains often do. Uh, but Charles interfered for unknown reasons. He's maybe an overprotective brother. You know they all they happen. Uh, so the Duke, being mad, captured Charles and used a mysterious ray that he keeps in the sewers to get rid of his face. And now you may be wondering how, without a face, how does he talk? How does he eat? How does he see? It's not explained. With with the question, it's like a, it's a substance he puts over his face that he can take off. Um, and it's not he doesn't actually not have a face. You just can't see his face, his features. But this guy just it's it's weird. Uh, so they're like, the Duke's got to be destroyed. He's after Carol and our money. Um, and then Bruce Wayne's like, no, nah, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Uh, will excuse me. And then I like to imagine that he just walks out of one, walks out of the door. And then a few minutes later, Batman walks in and they don't question it. They don't question it. It says Bruce Wayne disappears, but the Batman enters and Carol's like, oh yeah, I've heard of you, the Batman. And Charles is like, all right, here's the instructions. So he swings through the Paris night and swings right down into the open sewer and he's down there and these henchmen of the Duke, uh, they think he's a drunk person from a masquerade ball and they try to rob him. He, of course, is Batman, so he beats up one, threatens him and Batman's trying to like ask him where the Duke is, but the guy's like, ah, you're choking me, but too late, here comes the Duke, and the Duke is here, and he's got a cane, he looks very fancy, he looks very, he's wearing like uh, a coat with tails, very fancy tuxedo-like suit, he's wearing a cane and a, and a cloak, uh, he looks a bit like Alfred, but evil, or a vampire, and he's got a cane, and he shoots Batman with the, the this magical blinding light cane, and the henchmen bring him back to the Duke's lair, and the Duke, before putting Batman in this torture device, explains what it is. It's called the Wheel of Chance. And now I might be thinking, like, Wheel of Fortune or, like, one of those wheels, maybe on The Price is Right, where there's a chance to get, like, a bunch of money. Um, but no, this one, there's only two chances. It's basically the Wheel of 50-50. So there's a 50% chance that you the wheel spins so fast while you're on it that you fall off and hit the wall and die with with such speed and force or you stay on and you just it's you go mad from the the spinning there's no good chances in this torture device the duke is such a sicko that he watches from behind a glass door so the wheel he straps batman to the wheel and it starts to spin and it's turning and it's 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 getting faster and faster um but before it gets too fast batman uses his just steel like muscles to break his leather uh, straps, strapping him to the thing. And then he undoes his legs and gets ready to jump free from the from the wheel. 
And so he and so Batman jumps. You might be thinking, well, that's silly. He's going really fast. What if he hits the wall and dies? That's what I thought. But the Duke opens the ceiling door, which is the thing that he has, I guess. And Batman flies out into the flower garden. Now, I will say this. This flower garden is not explained. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you what it is. And they don't explain why. So, just prepare yourself. Batman lands in a flower garden. And in this flower garden, all the flowers have human, female faces. I presume he was going to turn Carol into these one of these flowers. But it's not explained. Uh, and it's weird. It just comes out of nowhere. Um, it's like it's like oh okay this is a pretty grounded you know some you know Batman story and then it's like wait human face flowers it's all right. Uh, so back to the Duke. The Duke is watching Batman go crazy in this in this flower face flower garden through a window and he's like okay I've got the Batman. Uh, go get the girl and her brother and they do that they grab them both and they strap Charles to the wheel. And they're going to do the same thing that they were going to do to Batman. And we cut back to Batman, and he seems to hear the flowers murmur, which like, seems to. Does he actually? Where does he get this information? Are these flowers actually human faces? But the flower says to him, she says, I send my thoughts to you. So she has telepathic abilities and also is a flower with a human face. She has layers. She tells Batman that he must release them, the flowers. And to follow the head to a glass door, which leads to the wheel room. And the rest is up to you. We'll come back to this. So Batman does that. And he gets to a door. It's not a glass door. The flower is a liar. Uh, it's a door with a window on it. Not even a window. Like just those, like a uh, tic-tac-toe board kind of symbol. Like grate on the door. Not even close to a glass door. But it leads to the wheel room. And in there, Charles is in there. He's um, He's spinning around. And Batman uses his silk rope, as he often does, uh, to stop it from spinning. Stops it dead in its tracks. Sudden stop. Doesn't get pulled along. He's so strong like that. He's Batman. So after freeing Charles, Charles tells him that the Duke has taken Carol to his palace in Champagne, which is another city in France, if you are not aware. Uh, and he says, you gotta kill him, Batman. You are my assassin. He doesn't say you're my assassin, but basically he's like, go be an assassin for me for fun so batman does that he gets in his bat plane that he has if if you remember that's how he got to paris in the first place uh and he flies off to chase the car and he's chasing the car and it's very similar to when he was chasing the car that had the monk in it if you remember from last episode he sets his automatic controls because when he's flying the bat plane gotta set the automatic controls and he goes down on his rope ladder and jumps onto the roof and him and the duke fight the duke tries to use his light cane again Batman's prepared for it and says, nah, -uh, no way. And they're struggling, the Duke and the Batman, but the Duke forgot that he has a prisoner. And uh, Carol kicks him in the back, and then Batman can get the upper hand. And through their struggle, like, they, they must distract the driver or something. And the, the car drives off a cliff, but luckily Batman grabs his rope ladder, and uh, him and Carol are safe. Then Carol says, Carol and Charles are like, oh, thank you so much. We kind of see, like, the side, like, the profile of Charles, and it looks like he has a face again, so uh, I guess they undid the anti-face ray, which, like, what a weird thing to invent. It doesn't really, other than disappearing some guy's face, it doesn't really do anything. You know, he's he's alive still, he can clearly still eat food somehow, and speak, and breathe, and see, so weird, um, weird ray to invent. 
And she says, thank you so much. I can't express like how much um, we appreciate this. Can you tell us who you are? And uh, Batman's like, nah, that's my secret. And then he says, au revoir, which is French for goodbye. And that's the end. Now you might be wondering, what about the flowers? They don't say. They don't say what happens with the flowers or if Batman undoes their flowerness. Uh, these have often been two-parters. Could, there could be a part two to this where he does something with the flowers. I Maybe. We'll, we'll find out uh, next episode. But yeah, that's the end. Uh, I, I mean, a, a fine Batman story other than just the, the weird parts like the anti-face ray and the talking flowers. But other than that, it's a pretty standard Batman story. Uh, so yeah. So, moving on to Adventure Comics number 45. Released November 9th, 1939, with a cover date of December 1939. Just a Sandman in this one, no debuts or anything, which I've been forgetting to mention. Not that it's important. I would have told you in the issues if, when things debuted. Uh, this one was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Craig Flessel. So, this one is a bad story, okay? Just bad story alert. Really bad story. Uh, I was, I know I was praising the Sandman's last story as being, like, really good once Gardner F. Fox was got involved and and Craig Flessel did the art, and the art I thought was really good last issue. Uh, the art's fine. It, it I, I have a bad quality uh, copy of it, so uh, the art wasn't great for me, but... The story itself was just garbage. It was just a garbage story. Uh, so I guess Gardner Fox is not infallible, obviously. Uh, and this one was really bad. So we we uh, we are, we see the Sandman in media res, and we learn that he has figured out a plot to kidnap G- Gloria Gordon, the Golden Gusher, who is a singer at the Golden Gusher Club, uh, which is just terrible names all around for everything the sandman hides in her dressing room after knocking out some old man Uh, it doesn't say who the guy is he just says sorry old man and just knocks him out and waits in her dressing room and he overhears as gloria and her manager come in that uh, there's a kidnap note saying that gloria is going to be kidnapped and then gloria says that she's not afraid because she's going to retire not that i don't know why that would stop any sort of kidnapping but she's going to retire and so Charlie won't be her manager anymore, which is not good for Charlie because he needs the money that managers make from managing clients. So he then talks to a guy. We learn that this is her husband, Rendell. That's his last name. That's not his first name. His first name's like John or something. But everyone just calls him Rendell. Charlie says, you got to save her from being kidnapped. Not like, why not call in the police or something? I don't know. He does say, get the G-men. Charlie, you can do that, you know, right? Like, you have the note. You can call the police and be like, there's threats of kidnapping. Can you do anything? Randall wants to be paid for it. So Charlie gives him a big old fat roll of bills. And the Sandman, I don't know how the Sandman overhears that because he's inside of the dressing room, but uh, whatever. Randall goes into Gloria's dressing room, and it turns out that that was all a ruse uh, the retire, like the threatening of retiring and stuff and the kidnapping, all that kind of stuff. And so it, it's all a really convoluted plan to both fleece Charlie out of money for trying to stop the kidnapping. And then also apparently you can take out insurance policies against kidnapping. So like if someone gets kidnapped, 
I guess the insurance company has to give you money. I don't know how that works. So there's an insurance company on Gloria for being kidnapped. So if she gets kidnapped, there's a payout. But it's a fake kidnapping. Her and her husband have planned this. So that's just know that. So then the Sandman comes out of his hiding spot and knocks them both out with his gas gun, sprinkles his sand like he do to know that so everyone knows it was him and kidnaps Gloria himself. Uh, he drives her somewhere to a house to the countryside and she wakes up and he says confess to the plot to rob the insurance company that insured you against kidnapping um she says no and calls him a fool and he's like well i'm the sandman and i have this reputation as being a criminal um and he's like are you going to confess now she says no and he calls she calls her insane and she says rendell will get me out of here why how he's just a guy so then the Sandman is talking to this guy who's also apparently there. Um, I think his name is Toki, T-O-K-I. And he asks him to take care of her. Like, not in, like, take care of her, like, kill her, but, like, take care of her while she's here being held against her will. Sandman says, I have to break this racket against insurance companies or my pal Doug Nye is going to lose his job. So Doug Nye uh, is apparently an insurance guy. Uh, and oh, that's funny. Kind of reminded me of Bill Nye, the science guy. So this is, but this is his cousin, Doug Nye, the insurance guy. Uh, he's a much more hated figure than Bill Nye. So I guess maybe Doug Nye has like a thing in his in his his contract that says if anyone ever gets kidnapped and has an insurance a kidnap policy with us, you're fired. Um, I mean, I guess if an insurance company has to pay out too much, they can't afford to exist anymore so i guess he could lose his job that way um but insurance companies are scum most of the time so especially medical insurance companies but so he goes so as wesley dodds he goes and talks to doug nye and he's gets the, he gets the skinny and he's like so if you get proof that gloria golden wasn't kidnapped you wouldn't have to pay out the money and Doug says, yeah, but I mean, it's useless because the Sandman's got her and like he's um, this master criminal or whatever. And Wesley, in order to not not bring any suspicion on himself, even though this is really suspicious what he says, suppose the Sandman are trying to help you, Doug. He might be forcing them to play their hands. Don't give up. I'm sure something will happen. Wesley Dodds leaves and is back as the Sandman and he goes back to the club looking for Rendell. And on the table, uh, Charlie is dead. Uh, we're not. We're just supposed to uh, guess that is Charlie because it looks like Charlie. So Charlie, the manager of Gloria, is dead for some reason. The Sandman uh, breaks into his safe and f finds that all of his money is gone. Oh no! Wait, sorry, I misread that. His money's not gone. So Rendell didn't take the money to pay the ransom for the kidnapping. And then Sandman finds a book, a diary in the safe as well, that John and Gloria are married, which, I mean, we didn't have to know that. It wasn't important, um, I guess. So the Sandman goes to visit Rendell at his house, and Rendell's there at his house. And Rendell asks where Gloria is because the Sandman actually kidnapped her. And then the Sandman makes Rendell sign a... a a paper freeing the Sandman of any liability of kidnapping Gloria. And he says that he'll return 
Gloria safely in 24 hours. And he does that, he does that, like he said he would. And he calls Doug Nye and says, uh, hey, it's me, the Sandman. I kidnapped Gloria, but I returned her safely, so now you won't have to pay out any of the money. Now he's Wesley Dodds again, and he wants to talk to Doug. Or Doug wants to talk to him, sorry. And Doug tells Wesley about the Sandman call, saying that Gloria was returned. Uh, but then he called Rendell and, uh, to verify it. And Rendell says, nope, she wasn't. She's still kidnapped. And I'm very, very sad about it. Uh, he doesn't say that. Then Wesley, again, suspiciously says, I'm sure you'll be surprised later um, in a few hours. And, and then for some reason, Wesley asks about where the kidnap money is going to be paid over. So Rendell has told the insurance company that the rant, the kidnapper wants the money at 3 a.m. At, at Wanmouth. So this is, a, this is a ransom payover. So Rendell has the cash from the company because of the kidnapping. So Wesley puts back on a Sandman costume and waits there at 3, 3 a.m. And he waits until 3.30 and Rendell never shows up. Because obviously, there's no actual kidnapper. So he rushes back to the club for some reason because he just thinks they're going to be there. There's a policeman on guard. He gasses him. There's some guards. He gasses them. Uh, then he makes a phone call to the police. and No, sorry, to Doug Nye and says, bring some police to Pier 7 um, if, you, if you want your insurance money back. And they go there and... They're on the, the ship. Sandman finds Rendell and Gloria, and Rendell hits him with a bottle, you know, kind of to, to knock him out. And then uh, Rendell says he's going to go find a way to get off the boat. Uh, he sees that the police are here. He's going to save the money, and then Gloria can and Gloria can figure out her, her part herself. The Sandman wakes up, and he, you know, he gets away from Gloria and, and gets Rendell, and Rendell gets to the police, and then he gives this, like, spiel. So I'll just, I'm just going to read it verbatim because it confuses the heck out of me, any of this. So it says the man thought up the idea to, to fleece the insurance companies by having Gloria kidnapped after he insured her heavily against it. He sent her threatening notes as a buildup to get Charlie Jones to pay him to stop this kidnapping. This is all what the Sandman is telling the police. But Charlie caught on. He knew Rendell married Gloria. So as a wife, she could not testify against him. Uh, he discovered what Rendell was doing, so Rendell shot and killed him. Uh, the Sandman kidnapped Gloria to forestall Rendell. Of course, Rendell couldn't pull another kidnap right away, so he had to say that the Sandman hadn't returned her, but he signed a release to Sandman. Uh, here's the signature, and there you go. So, I just have so much that I want to say about this. So, uh, I guess the Charlie part was just like a double racket. Get some money out of uh, Charlie. Why Charlie didn't call the police himself as the manager of Gloria. He needs to protect his asset. He should have called the police rather than just asking her husband to do something. So that's stupid on Charlie's part. Uh, on the Sandman's part, he kidnapped her. He actually did kidnap her. So legally through insurance reasons, they should get the money because she was kidnapped. Although the Sandman didn't ask for money, so I guess there has to be a ransom for the insurance to be paid out. I don't know. Because they're ne they never talk about a ransom note or anything. And then finally, the insurance company has investigators. There are insurance fraud investigators. They investigate everything before they pay out any money. So if, if, if 
Gloria was fake kidnapped and they got the money for the ransom, the insurance company would then do an investigation, especially if it seems like there's foul play. Like there's an entire part, like I'm, I don't know this for sure. Like I'm not an insurance person, but there is an entire part in the video game, which is, it's a video game, but it's, it feels like it's based on real life. Maybe LA Noir, where you are an insurance investigator and you investigate insurance fraud. So why did the salmon have to get involved? Why would Doug Knight lose his job? I don't know. It's a bad story. It confused me so gosh dang much. And I want to move past it. It's a bad story. Let's brush it off like water off your back like you're a duck. Let's move on. My goodness. So we will move on to our final issue of the episode. And it's the most exciting one, I will say. Uh, it is Flash Comics number one. We've got three... Well, actually, we've got a ton of debuts um, in this one. So, uh, first first things first. Released November 10th, 1939. Cover date, January 1940. Let's talk about debuts. We have uh, several debuts. About six of them. Uh, so, we've got Jay Garrick, The Flash. The first Flash. The one with the silver helmet and the mercury wings. Uh, and the wearing, wearing jeans and, like, a red shirt. Uh, we've got... Joan Williams, who will eventually become his wife, uh, and she she sticks around as long as Jay is around as well. Uh, then we've got Carter Hall, Hawkman. We'll explain his stuff when we get to him. Uh, and we've got Shiera, or Shiara. Her name is always pronounced. It's because sometimes it's alien, sometimes it's not. S H E I R A, Shiera Saunders. Uh, she'll eventually become Hawkwoman or Hawk Girl, and then we've got two in our last story. Uh, we've got Johnny Thunder and we've got Thunderbolt, and we'll explain there. They're a more, uh, I will say, niche character, like a, a smaller character, uh, but they deal with like fourth dimensional stuff, and it's it's pretty cool and interesting. But we will get to them when we get to their stories. But that's a lot of debuts. That's like six debuts. If you separate out the alter egos, it's even more. But why would you do that? That'd be silly. But first, let's get to the Flash story first up. So this one was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Harry Lampert. Let's start off with the Flash. Now, this one is the first time that an entire issue is involving the origin of the of the character that we're talking about. The origin and backstory and it's their first sort of case all rolled into one. It's It's pretty cool and it's... It's smart, I think, uh, to, so that you know things about the character before you get, you know, see if you want to be invested or whatever. So let's all read the first little blurb uh, that comes underneath the, the title. It says, faster than the streak of light of the lightning in the sky, swifter than the speed of the light itself, fleeter than the rapidity of thought is the flash, reincarnation of the winged Mercury. His speed is the dismay of scientists, the joy of the oppressed, and the open-mouthed wonder of the multitudes. I don't know why it would be the dismay of scientists, because uh, Jay Garrick is also a scientist um he is a professor in this issue yes it is the dismay of four specific scientists but we'll get to that so let's learn a bit about jay garrick and his life uh he's a sort of a nobody at midwestern university we meet him and he is running after joan uh we'll learn later that this is joan williams 
and he asks her out on a date to the victory dance. And she says no because he's a he's a scrub on the football team. She's, you know, channeling a little bit TLC and she don't want no scrubs. A scrub is a guy who don't get no love from her. And anyways, the captain Boltrian uh, asked her out already. So she went with, you know, asked her first. So and he, and he's like, "So you won't go out with me just cuz I'm a football scrub?" And she says something confusing like, no, but because a man of your build and brains could be a star, a football star. A scrub is just an old washwoman. I don't get that. I don't understand why she said that. You won't put your mind to football. Joan, come on, think about this. Jo- Jay's not going to be a professional footballer if he's just a scrub. If, if he thinks that he can, you know, if he wanted to be a footballer, he would have focused on football. But... He's focusing on his brains because he thinks that a, a job in an education is more important than football, Joan. Uh, you know, and, and we see that Jay is bad at football. He's called Leadfoot Jay because he's so slow and bad at playing football. But he's really smart. He's a he's a smart science student, uh, and he is studying hard water. You know, when your water softener it runs out of salt and like it, it, water feels bad on your skin. No, it's some different type of hard water. I don't know what it means, but I think it has something to do with chemicals or something cuz Jay's been studying the gases that come from hard water for like 3 years. So he needs to separate the elements of hard water and he his experiments taking him long into the night. It's 3:30 a.m. and Jay's like the heck with football training. I need to smoke a cigarette because I'm assuming they don't want them smoking cigarettes because it's bad for your lungs and it you know makes it so you can't do physical activity as good. So he's relaxing, smoking a cigarette, uh, and he bumps some science stuff off of the table, and they crash to the floor, and a bunch of gases come out of the stuff inside, and Jay passes out, and he spends all night just inhaling those gas elements from hard water. And he's on the brink of death the next for weeks. For the weeks, he's on the brink of death. But he wakes up and his body is, you know, healing itself as the bodies do. And he's loving life in the hospital, eating food. And these two science nerds uh, t- tell us, the, the audience, that the, the gases that he inhaled and, like, they permeated his body. And um, They say this phrase, science knows that hard water makes a person act quicker than ordinarily. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Why don't we all be drinking hard water? I'm assuming because it's dangerous. So basically, the the gas has been, you know, it's permeated his body and it's made him incredibly fast. They say he'll probably be able to outrun a bullet, which he does several times in this episode. So he's out of the hospital now, and he's all good. He's putting on a tie, and he sees Joan out the window. Or I guess he's, he's getting ready to leave the hospital, I should say. And he runs through the hospital, and everyone's, like, shocked because they think he sees that there's a ghost or a hurricane inside. And he gets to Joan before she can even take another step. That's how fast he ran. And Joan's like, oh, hey, Jay, uh, it's nice to see you. I was just going to the library to get a book. And he's like, don't worry, I'll get it. And he's gone, and he's at the library. And the librarian is shocked. And he says, stamp this book. I'm checking it out. And she says, okay. And then he runs away again. And she says, he's he's disappeared. I'm going to faint. And I think I will. Uh, you Hey, you faint, librarian. You deserve that break. Librarians work hard. So then Jay's back with Joan and got, to get, got him the book. And now he's like, so will you go to the, to the dance with me? Because he's like super fast now and it's impressive. And she says, yes, but only if he'll play in the state game. I'm assuming like the championship or something. And he agrees, 
to do that. Uh, but when the game happens, he's just sitting on the bench uh, and just ri just riding the pine, as they say. Uh, but luckily, Bull Trian gets hurt, every like tons of people getting injured, and Jake finally gets to get in. And when he gets in, everyone's like, "No, Leadfoot Jay, we're gonna lose really bad." Like, because they're already losing thirty to zero, and they say we're gonna lose ninety to zero. There's gotta be a mercy rule, right? I don't know football rules, but I know that in high school there's a mercy rule. I don't know if that's the same way in college. So, Jay's in, uh, and he, you know, uses his super speed and gets touchdown after touchdown. And during signals, he, he runs up to the stance and asks Jones, Joan how he's doing. And she says, you're doing wonderfully. Uh, and he runs back down. And he wins the game 65 to 30. I'm assuming he had so many um, running yards uh, and touchdowns himself. Probably broke some records. Uh, and then, then we, we fast forward to uh, the end of the year when, he, when Joan and he both graduate. Joan is going to go help her dad work on his uh, scientific researches into this thing called uh, an atomic bombarder. And Jay is off to New York uh, to be an assistant professor at Coleman University. Uh, we then see Jay reading the paper and he says, racketeers wreck stores and elude the district attorney's men. So he somehow gets a uniform. He somehow makes a uniform really quickly. I mean, he has the flash. He could do that. Uh, and he makes a uniform, and it's the it's a silver helmet, sort of um, uh, reminiscent of World War One helmets with wings on the side, and a red shirt with a lightning bolt, and jeans and boots with wings on them, like Mercury. And he runs and steals all the money from these racketeers and returns it. Uh, and then he f says he feels useful. Then the next day or sometime later, it says he's playing tennis by himself at Coleman University and not, you know, hitting balls from the like the a ball sh shooter thing. But he's playing uh, a game where he is both players. Uh, he's running back and forth, hitting the tennis back and forth. He's very out in the open with his superpowers. Like Joan knows about it. The college knows about it. Obviously, uh, football, he used it a bunch. But everyone just thinks he's really fast, and, and I guess it's not a bad thing. Uh, and and two people see him doing this, and the guy, he's an older gentleman, is like, wow, that dude's fast. And uh, the woman who we learned is Joan, Joan Williams, uh, is like, that's Jay Garrick. I know him from college. And Joan, uh, so they say, hello. It's like, oh, hey, what's up? The first thing she tells Jay after not seeing him for a certain amount of time says, my dad's been kidnapped. You got to help me. At that moment, a uh, car drives by and attempts to shoot Joan. But Jay, using his super speed, gets you know to the same speed as the bullet and grabs it out of the midair, saving her life. Uh, then we cut to another part of town where four gentlemen, one, one's walking in from outside, walking through a door, saying that Joan Williams is dead because he shot her. Uh, and we're introduced to these people. Uh, Sire Satan, Serge... Orloff, uh, Duriel, and uh, the unnamed guy who shot Joan Williams. They are the people who have kidnapped Joan's dad, and they want the secrets of the atomic bomber. They're so smart. One of them's a really smart surgeon and can bring Joan back to life or something, even though she's... Maybe maybe he only shot to, like, mortally wound but not kill, so she's, like, dying. So one of them goes disguised as an undertaker and goes to Joan's house and he meets Jay on the front step as J Jay is walking up and 
he asks Jay about the dead girl. And Jay's confused because he's like, there's no dead girl. And he's like, you mean Miss Williams? And it's like, yeah, she had an accident, right? And Jay is suspicious. And Joan comes out and the guy is confused because she's supposed to be dead. And then he runs away and gets in a car and drives away. And Joan reveals that he must be one of the faultless four, the men who have kidnapped her father. And it's revealed that these faultless four, they they sent a card. They want the secrets of the secret uh, atomic bomber bombarder. And then they kidnapped her father. And so, you know, they're trying to get the secrets out of her. And she wants the Flash to help. And Jay does. He turns into the Flash. He runs there. Or he chases after the car and gets there before the guy who ran away does. And he gets inside the fortress or inside the f- base of operations. And he overhears them saying that they're going to try and kill Joan again so that they can have, you know, something over Major Williams, her father, for him to give them the secrets of the atomic bombarder. Uh, They attempt to shoot the Flash. The Flash runs as fast as a bullet and grabs it. Then we're given a little science lesson uh, that two objects that are moving at the same speed, like a bullet and the Flash are running at the same speed, so the bullet doesn't hurt the Flash to grab. Then uh, the Flash, like, runs throughout the entire base uh, looking for the major and he finds him in a trap door grabs him put him puts him on his back and runs him home once he's reunited joan with her father he runs back to the base of the faultless four and overhears them they're coming up with a plan to make a like a big flashy diversion so that the police are busy so they can go and kill joan and, and get her father to give them the th- the the secret and uh, so they're going to do like this big attack on Coney Island. So Jay goes to Coney Island the next day and stops the attack. It's it's one of them is in a plane and he's shooting down at the beach, but Jay runs fast enough and catches all of the bullets until he runs until the guy in the plane runs out of bullets, stopping his plan. Then he runs back to where Joan is at, at her apartment and he sees two of the the members of the of the Faultless Four attempting to, you know, do something nefarious and he slows down so that he, they can see him. So then they run away. Then he follows them back to their base, gets there, and one of them is attempting to lock him in a room. He thinks he locks the Flash in the room with his other three compatriots. Then he flips a switch, electrocuting the room, and he thinks he's killed them all. But the Flash, of course, being super fast, ran through the crack in the door before it was closed. So this guy just killed his three friends rather than the Flash and his three friends. Uh, He is evil. His last name is Satan. Then he gets in a car, his super new speedy car, and attempts to drive away. Uh, the Flash, of course, can run just as fast as fast as the car. This causes Sire Satan to kind of crack, like his mind cracks, and he just drives straight off a cliff, and the Flash runs to the bottom before he crashes, and then watches him crash and die. Yeah, and then, and then the last the kind of resolution is we see a panel of Major Williams, and he's like, yeah, this Flash person really saved me. And Jay's like, yeah, that's interesting. And Joan and him wink at each other and be like, uh, this Flash guy seems pretty cool. So, uh, I uh, really I kind of very interesting first foray into the Flash. The Flash is seen as being basically faster than anything, uh, and at this point he doesn't have all the like, his super villains that are just as fast as him. So he's really kind of <laughs> villains are kind of playthings in his hands. But his secret, just like with Superman, his secret identity is flimsy because they both show their full on faces uh, and. Just Jay's wearing like this helmet, so but a, a very cool uh first story. And moving on, we will be covering the next story in Flash Comics number one Hawkman. 
The Origin of Hawkman is what this story is called, the first of Hawkman's foray into comics and existence, I should say. This story was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Dennis Neville. So, I, I like Dennis Neville's art, I will say. Um, sometimes the art's pretty bad, but this has a lot of detail in it, which I I enjoy when viewing like the Sandman story in Adventure Comics number 45. There was not a lot of detail, a lot of, a lot of blanks that weren't cool. This is really, really detailed, and I really like it. Uh, so first, just like with The Flash, let's read the little blurb for since it's the first issue and the first story. The Hawkman. Beginning the tale of a phantom of the night, the Hawkman, who from time immemorial has fought the cause of justice against the force of evil. The Hawk fights the evil of the present with the weapons of the past. Which that last sentence, um, I wonder if we'll, we'll stick around because in this issue he does switch weapons a lot. Not a lot, twice. So let's let's get into it. We see this blonde man in a suit in a library, and we are told that this is Carter Hall. He is a wealthy collector of weapons and research scientist, and he is in his weapon-lined library. Uh, and he just got a new one, and it is a glass knife. It, it was used to offer ancient sacrifices. And the knife begins to glow, and it puts Carter to sleep. And he dreams, and in this dream, he is being uh, whipped by this man and questioned by this priest. The man in in the in looks like ceremonial garb is asking him to tell him what he wants to know. And Carter Hall says, "I'll never tell you of Shiera, betrayed betrayed by the hot god Anubis. I love her and hate your evil ways." And then he says, "Not yet." Do you defeat Prince Khufu? So he is he is Prince Khufu at this time. This is his, this is his first life, and it's pretty clear that they're living in ancient Egypt. That is as typically how far back the 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 hawks lineage goes. Um, I will say obviously it's 1939, so they are not Egyptian because he is a he is a blonde white guy. Um, you could you could write that off as, as him seeing himself as his modern self or just the writers didn't want to make him Egyptian uh it, it could go either way and I will say they kind of play fast and loose with uh, Anubis because as we know Anubis is the god of the underworld in in um or the god of the dead in ancient Egyptian mythology and he is not a hawk god hawk hawk god he is a, a big dog big dog man so they, they play really fast with fast and loose with that and uh, with gravity, and what causes gravity later on. So uh, this guy, this evil ceremonial garb wearing guy, he rushes off. He runs away because uh, because Carter Hall has defeated his guard and uh, is going to kill him. And Carter gets into his chariot and rushes over to uh, his love, uh, Shiera. So they they're together and they're hugging and they're beloved and. Um, Suddenly, it's dark outside, and the uh, we we learn that the guy who is attacking Prince Khufu is Hathset, um, a false priest, and his soldiers are coming to get Shaira and Carter. And Khufu says, "I'm gonna go out there and fight them all," and he does. He fights them all, but he's not strong enough to defeat them all. He's just one man, and he's gonna get hit with an arrow. But he says uh, that if he's gonna die, Shaira is gonna die with him in his arms, and I think. That's supposed to come off as romantic. It seems kind of, to me, weird. 
Because, like, I don't know if she's going to die, but maybe he's saving her from some sort of worse fate than death. You know, we don't know what Hathset is going to do with Shiera. Uh, so they, uh, instead of killing him, they're both captured, and Hathset takes them. And Hathset wants to be master of the globe. I don't know if they know that the Earth is round at this point yet. Hathset is going to get them out of his way, uh, and he kills them with this glass dagger. And Prince Khufu, as he's dying, he says a prophecy. He says, I die, but I shall live again, as shall you, Hathset, and then I shall be the victor. And they are. They are reborn. Uh, it doesn't say if this is the first time that they're reborn or if it's like, as we know, like they're reborn several times and then something kills them all. Not old age. They all die from some other reasons. Their battles, you know, typically is what causes them all to die. But, so they are reincarnated in the modern age, the 20th century, which is modern in this time. Uh, Prince Khufu then uh, is walking. He needs to go on a walk after his spooky dream. And he is walking by the subway, and everyone's rushing out, and there's smoke coming from it. And he's just a good guy, so he runs down there. Um, and he bumps into this woman, and they lock eyes, and he s remembers her from his dream. And he says, pardon me, you... You're Shaira, and she she says Shaira, how did you know that? And he's like, never mind, we'll talk about that later. the 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 subway's gonna explode with electricity. And they leave, and they take a taxi back to Carter's house, and he explains uh, about his dreams. And she says, yeah, I have those dreams too. And he wants to find out what's going on with this electricity because that wasn't that wasn't normal. What happened down there? And so he tunes he tunes in on his dynamo detector. Um, I guess he is a research scientist, so maybe he's re he researches dynamos, which dynamos are the big things that like make electricity. So this detector detects artificial electricity being produced or something. I don't know. It's not it's not explained. And he grabs uh, some stuff from his weapons room. He uh, he re and he returns. Uh, clad as a grim jest in the guise of the ancient hawk god Anubis. Uh, we are we are led to believe that this is what the Anubis, the hawk god, looks like. I'll probably post pictures of, of Hawkman and, and the Flash and Johnny Thunder just so that everyone can see them and know what I'm talking about just in case you haven't. But if you have never seen Hawkman before, he wears like a hawk head on his head and he's got wings and uh, he's got like the like straps from the wings strapped because they're not real wings. They're they're made of nth metal or at this time ninth metal. Uh, and he's wearing green pants, red underwear on the outside. And right now he's carrying a big staff. So this this exp they explain a little bit about the wings. So it says Hawkman, the peril of peril of the night, whose extraordinary powers are derived from Carter Hall's discovery of the secret of the ages, the ninth metal which defies the pull of the Earth's gravity. So that's how he's able to fly. Not sure why they look like wings, because um, he calls them, in, in future panels, he calls them uh, a cloak, uh, a net. I don't know why they're, they're wings. but So he follows, he uses his dynamo detector, and he's flying through the air. With the, the help of his dynamo detector, he finds uh, the home of Dr. Hastor, electrician extraordinaire. He's got a giant dynamo in there. And inside, uh, this giant dynamo is running, and uh, Dr. Hastor says, My lightnings have swept clean the subways of the city. Soon I shall make my demands. 
my own creation with it, I shall rule the world, even as did hath set priest of what's that? And and as as he says what's that, uh, he sees Hawkman looking through a window, and Doctor Astor said it must be Anubis, Hawk God of the Ancients. Now, Hawkman dives in to attack, uh, and Doctor Astor attempts to blast him with electricity, but. Hawkman is not wearing anything that conducts electricity. His quarterstaff is made of wood. Uh, the hood of the hawk is just, you know, f- f- some sort of fabric or headdress or something. And the cloak of the web of the ninth metal is non-conducting. And so this is the part where they play, they kind of play fast and loose with what gravity is. It repels electricity, which is the basis of the force of gravity. Now, I'm no physicist. I don't know if that's true. Uh, but it doesn't seem, it doesn't feel right um, to say that that's true. So I don't know. But he attacks the, the dynamo and, and breaks it, breaks it bad. And Hastor shakes his fist in the sky and says, you shall pay, 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 pay. And several hours later, Hawkman has been searching the house and searching the house and can't find Dr. Hastor. Um, and Dr. Hastor is spying on him and says, no, it's not Anubis. It's Khufu, reincarnated. And then he says, then Shiera must also live, uh, which wouldn't he know that by being, well, I guess, unless this is the first time, if this is, this implies that it's the first time they're being reincarnated because maybe he thought he was reincarnated and then was just like, wow, I lucked out. So cool. Uh, so he goes to this thing called the Atar of Myrrh and it, it's, it can be used to call on people of the ancient blood, which is a very, that's a very specific item that would only work on three people. Huh, weird. It sends out the scent of myrrh through the city, and to normal people, it would just smell like myrrh, but to people of the ancient blood, it acts as a summons. So, Shiera, over in Carter Hall's house, becomes entranced and starts, like, zombie walking towards Dr. Hastor's house. Hawkman's flying too high to smell it, so he's, he's unaffected. He, and he is heading back to his house, and once he gets there, Shiera is gone, so he knows that it's Hastor, hath set has done something to her. So he grabs another cloak of the ninth metal for Shiera. Don't don't get it twisted. She's not becoming Hawkwoman or Hawk Girl in the this first issue. That would be really, really progressive and cool, but that's not what happens. Uh, and then also Hawkman switches to a crossbow. Also there's something interesting here. So when when Carter gets back, he he lifts up the the hawk mask to show his face at his house or whatever and it looks really funny because it looks like he's just got he's just wearing a hawk head on his face but his eyes are in his own face it's i'll, I'll post a picture of it. it looks it looks really really silly um but it's a weird detail but i i, I like that it is it's there so shiera's made it back to dr hestor's house and he grabs her and he's ready to sacrifice her to anubis and he's going to basically zap her with, with his giant dynamo electricity. Uh, but before he can do that, he's, he flips a switch. And before it can happen, uh, Hawkman returns and throws the second cloak of ninth metal over her body. And it doesn't attract electricity, so she is immune. Hawkman then shoots Dr. Hestor with an arrow from the or a bolt from the crossbow. Uh, and he says, you shall be forever stilled, Hestor, the evil one. And Hestor says, you win now, Hawkman. Perhaps I shall not die. Not die. Who knows? And then he's dead. So he, And then he brings uh, Shiera back to his house, and she wakes up none the wiser of what happened, even though it doesn't matter if he she knows, because he are, she already knows his secret identity. Uh, but he thinks that it was too easy. 
he doesn't think he's seen the last of Hastor. I think he's right. And that's the end of issue one. This is two, or this, that's the end of story one, um, the story from this issue of Hawkman. Uh, I think it's really interesting that two, two, of the, two of the three stories, at least so far, uh, since we haven't gotten to, to Johnny Thunder yet, had the, the hero have someone who knows their secret identity. Jay Garrick has Joan, who knows his secret identity, and Carter Hall has Shira, who knows his uh, secret identity as Hawkman. Uh, because Batman has nobody at this point, because Alfred doesn't exist, and neither does Robin. And Superman doesn't either, because he hasn't gotten to the point where he trusts uh, Lois Lane, uh, and or is dating her, is married to her, and she knows then. Like, that's, it's interesting. It's, it kind of twists the dynamic of, of superheroes as someone who, eh, the secret identity doesn't mean as much. It's, it's nice that they're secret, but having somebody in your corner who knows who you are isn't necessarily a bad thing. So that's cool. That's really cool. But yeah, I think this was a good, uh, I think this was a good first uh, story for Hawkman. Uh, and I mean, eventually we'll get into stuff where their origin gets rebooted, where they're aliens now and stuff like that. It's, it's Thanagarians and stuff. It's, it's cool and weird and confusing. So, but right now it's pretty cool and it's uh, all about reincarnation. So let's move on to the next one. And that next one will be Johnny Thunderbolt, uh, who is a guy who's not really uh, a superhero. At this point in time, um, this one is this this one is just a straight up origin story uh, because, as I've said, he's not really a superhero, so he's not out fighting crime at this moment. He's kind of just existing. So, but first, let's get into the who who is who is responsible for this. So, this story, this Johnny Thunder's Johnny Thunderbolt story, is written by John B. Wentworth and drawn by Stan Ashmeyer. And it starts out introducing Simon B. Thunder, uh, his wife, Mildred Thunder, and their infant son, John L. Thunder. Cool last names, also just normal, normal human beings. Simon B. Thunder is a bank clerk, and his wife is a housewife, and their infant son, John, is an infant. He's a little baby. He's got curly blonde hair. He likes breaking stuff, from what we see. So this starts way, way back, August 1918, the Great War is i think over but it might be happening still i can't remember johnny thunder is kidnapped and his parents are distraught they're like we gotta get him back they they think they'll get a ransom note and then they'll the the police will do stuff like a dragnet and all that kind of stuff they never get a ransom note and they don't get him back so this is kind of a sad beginning so he is kidnapped by two people from badnesia which is a little bit lazy because they're bad guys. So they come from Badnesia. So I'm gonna put I'm gonna put one check mark in the that's lazy column for this story. And they dye his hair black, uh, so and and kind of uh, darken his skin a bit to make it look like he's from Badnesia. Badnesia is it's in Asia, South South Asia, somewhere. It's a fake country, just so that everyone's aware. Badnesia doesn't exist. Uh, so they dye his hair and they smuggle him out of the country. They take him to the priest of Azor and the temple of the seven great gates. Johnny Thunder is important to Badnesians and the priest of Azor and the temple of the seven great gates because he was born in the seventh circle of the moon. He was born at 7 a.m. 7th of July 1917. So that's 777 1917, which isn't important, but his birth was important. Very, very astrological. Uh, so they, they dress him up in the ceremonial seven emeralds of strength, 
They take him to the seven great gates and they perform a ceremony on him. And they attach onto him a belt that is eternal. It's called the eternal zone of the Zodiac. So it's kind of like this belt that is locked on him forever. Uh, and they pronounce, they pronounce the sacred word say you, which is pr- spelled C-E-I-U. They give us a pronunciation key. It sounds like say you uh, in English. Uh, and they say it seven times and, and the ceremony is completed. And they'll find out if the ceremony was a success on his seventh birthday. Sevens are very important in this story. And, and he'll give and he'll have the power to, to rule the world, uh, basically, if the ceremony is successful. And he will do it for Badnesia. And so Badnesia and its rulers can rule the world. So, you know, they have to wait seven years. That's that's a long time to see if it pays off. Uh, and I don't know how often a, a child born of the seven the circle of the seven moons or the seven circles. I I literally just read it and completely blanked on what it, what it was. Uh, Seventh circle of the moon. There we go. I don't know how often those are born. I guess every at 7am on the 7th of July every year. So, I mean, you just have a lot of these, you know, churning. It's like whiskey, you know, you gotta, you gotta barrel it like 10 years before you're ever going to, see any sort of turnaround so uh johnny thunder is like a fine whiskey a fine bourbon in badnesia word gets out to their neighboring the the neighboring country of agolia which is another fake country uh and these two countries are ancient enemies uh so agolia starts a war because they they want to get possession of this child that is supposed to get this great power eventually so they smuggle Johnny Thunder out of the country again to a, a village north of of Brunei, and someday they'll return to Badnesia. Uh, this this woman who is they basically call her a jailer nurse, so she's there to take care of Johnny and make sure that he doesn't get harmed or get away. But she's not she's not there to like be his mother or whatever. So uh, about five years later, uh, Johnny is playing on the beach with his monkey friend who is dressed like um the monkey from aladdin uh and so johnny wanted to go play in a ship or in a boat uh, a sailboat uh, he wants to be a big sailor uh and a wind comes out comes up and blows him out to sea and uh, the next thing he knows he's 23 miles away from uh the shore uh in the country of borneo and uh, a, a ship an american freighter passes by him and sees that it's just a kid in this boat. And so they put down a boat alongside and they grab him and they they realize that his hair is dyed black and he's actually blonde. And it's actually really, really cool. So throughout this, these first stories after they dyed his hair, his hair would be colored black as a, a, hair, a character with black hair would be in these comics. But right along the, the hairline would be yellow like blonde hair. I thought that was a really, really neat touch to say like, oh, it's growing out. They're not consistent enough with their dying to dye it uh, all the time to hide his roots. We've all been that way, you know, and you just don't want to go to this. You don't have a chance to get to the salon and everyone sees your roots and it's just the worst. But they they see that also his skin is sort of painted outside of his clothes. And if you like look under his shirt, his, his skin is just, you know, he's just white and he's got this weird strawberry mark, whatever strawberry mark is. I don't think it's a mark that looks like a strawberry because that'd be funny. I think it's some sort of birthmark. And they're like, this kid seems American. Uh, Obviously, there's other white people in... There are other white people in 
the world. He could be from any other country that has white people in it. Uh, his his parents could be, you know, living in uh, in Brunei, something like that. But they're just like he's American uh, because because this is a comic book. And uh, we then kind of get a get a story of what the Thunders have been doing the past five years. So things went bad. Uh, I'm assuming because he was so distraught, Johnny's father, Simon, lost his job. And uh, they had two more kids. And now he has a job as a Third Avenue uh, streetcar driver. And uh, one Tuesday, the ship that is carrying Johnny Thunder docks back in America, in New York, and they're going to take the 3rd Avenue uh, train streetcar to the police station uh, to to see what's up with uh, this kid. Johnny still has his little monkey friend, and uh, he's hiding it in his pants, and his monkey friend kind of peeks out as he's walking by the conductor, who is Simon B. Thunder, his father. And Simon grabs this kid's shirt, and it kind of pulls pulls down a bit, and he sees the, the birthmark. And he's like... Where did you find this child? And then they they realize, hey, this is this is him. This is Johnny. This is Johnny Thunder. This is the the boy who was kidnapped five years ago. He's back in the arms of his parents, and that's great. Uh, then two more years pass. I hope you didn't forget the seventh. His seventh birthday is the important part. On his seventh birthday, it's it rains for six days straight, uh, and on the seventh day, it rains even harder. But it doesn't rain at all at the Thunder's house. Which don't you? I, I wonder how big this radio was because it says all this time through the neighbors, though the neighbors were swamped, not a drop touched the Thunder home. And they live in the Bronx. They live in a four bedroom house. Uh, it's, that's quite a that's quite a fancy house. So, but like the Bronx is like a, in that part of the Bronx, you would presume that it's like other houses, not like apartment buildings and stuff. So the neighbors can't be too far away. Uh, but there's this interaction between the two Thunder parents, and they say the paper says local showers today, and and Mildred says it just goes to show you can't trust these weathermen with quotes. But like I feel like if they both just like looked out, it's downpouring, but just not around their house. But they're just like whatevs. The, the weathermen lied. It's not raining at my house, so they are wrong. So, but that's just funny. Uh, so the radius must not be huge. But during this, on the seventh day, this curious the the belt that is. Uh, locked onto Johnny Thunder starts to glow and the charms of, of the Badnesian uh, priest starts growing. It's taking effect, but obviously none of the Thunder family know what's up and they clearly haven't tried to remove this belt or anything. But this was a sign that the, the ceremony worked, so they have to find Johnny Thunder, the Badnesians do, the, the, the people who worship at the Temple of the Seven Gates. And they send men out all over the place looking for him. So they go to where they found him originally, but they have moved at that point. He changed jobs, they moved, and uh, they're still searching in, in 1939, and Johnny's 23 years old. So now we're in the present, and now we get to the actual kind of short little story that kind of introduces Johnny and what his capabilities are. So Johnny gets a job as a window washer uh, at the cash and carry department store, uh, which is uh, not typically what you would call a department store. Like a cash and carry is, it feels like a, is a convenience store, but it's 1939. Things are different. And Johnny's out there washing windows with one of his other co-worker window washing buddies. Um, and he says to him, he says, say you. Sorry, I don't know your name because this is his first day on the job. Uh, I forgot to bring a sponge. You got an extra one? And as he's reaching over to give him the sponge, the co-worker falls. But if, if you'll remember, 
Johnny said, say you. And during the ceremony, the say you was really important. So that activates his power. And basically any command he gives will be obeyed by anyone. And he's, and he's, he tells him, hang on till I get over there. And so the guy holds on and he's run, and Johnny's running through the store, running through the store. And this guy says, Hey, you can't run in the store. And Johnny says to the guy, go jump at a duck. And so then, uh, like there's, there's a flash of lightning, like a lightning symbol and, it, and, and it goes, zuz, 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 boom. And the duck appears and the guy's kind of like jumping at it, like kind of trying to spook it. Then Johnny gets over to the window that his coworkers hanging on. And he was obeying his command this whole time to hang on. But he then he got there and he said, hang on till I get there. And then he drops. He, he lets go and fall and starts falling. But then Johnny says, stop. And he just stops in midair. And that same effect happens. Boom with the lightning effect in the smoke. And he's just floating there in midair. And then Johnny gets down to the ground and says, come on down. And he just falls right on top of Johnny. It's kind of comical, you know, a little bit. Haha, you know, and he says, did you have to do it all at once? The Badnesians, as I said, are still looking for Johnny Thunder. And two two people on the street were Badnesian agents. And they send a telegram for every every Badnesian agent to come to, to, to New York or wherever they're at to get this guy. And they're going to try to capture him. But if they can't, they're going to kill him uh, so that no one else can have him, right? But the next morning at the store, Johnny gets a reward. He gets a medal and he gets to be head window washer on his second day at work. Wow, what a guy. For saving his coworker from dying. No one no one questioned the fact that he floated in midair or that guy was yelling at a duck. It's fine. But Johnny says, you know what? It just goes to show if you're honest, you get ahead. That's that's sometimes true, Johnny. A lot of the times if you lie, also you get ahead. And that's why a lot of people do a lot of bad things to get ahead. Uh, then he's, you know, he's heading to, to wash some windows and a bunch of Badnesian agents come out and, you know, they start attacking him and chasing him and he's he's getting surrounded and he's, you know, punching them to get away and he's running and running and running through the store, kind of kind of causing, you know, a mess and a racket. And um, he's finally surrounded, surrounded and cornered by these Badnesian agents. And he says, say, you ape, what are you doing with that gun? Because one of them is going to shoot him with a gun unless he doesn't come with them. They say, you belong to us. We made you what you are today. And then he says, we hope you're satisfied. And Johnny says, well, I'm not satisfied. You guys get in my hair. Every one of you go back where you came from. Scram, fade, blow away. The zzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
and it says that Thunderbolt debuts in Flash Comics number one. We don't see him, but it's I guess it's too uh, we are to assume that the zzzzzzz boom is Thunderbolt doing his thing, or like this whoosh of smoke is is Thunderbolt doing his stuff. We just don't see him yet. But I just wanted to mention that because if you look it up, it'll say that he debuted here, but we haven't seen him yet. So, but that is the final issue, and whew, that was a long one, wasn't it? Oh man, I, I I thought about I thought about cutting Flash Comics number one, but I was like, ah no, it's an inside it's an exciting part, and I think it's an exciting ending to 1939, and the beginning of 1940 for like this kind of more out there kind of stuff coming up coming about. But yeah, uh, I hope you liked it. I hope you liked this episode. I hope you enjoyed all this the stories of the issues. Uh, and so check us out on social media. Uh, we have Instagram where I post, I'm going to be posting primo panels, fun panels from all the issues this week. I'm, I'm going to start doing like a, like a Monday preview, like most exciting issue, uh, of the coming episode. And I'll just post other, other images and stuff, other cool stuff that I find from the issues. Uh, and that Instagram is issue issue podcast. Give us a follow and, uh, and, and keep in touch there. Uh, we've also got a Twitter issue issue pod. Don't really do a whole lot on there. I need to get better about doing stuff on there. Um, although Twitter is dying, as we all know. Elon Musk is kind of doing a number on it. But, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, and 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 be sure to, to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and give us a rating and a review because it, it helps out the show and, and helps for more people to see it. Because I think this is important to kind of uh, follow along as these uh, comics uh, evolve and, and advance and to, to get closer to what we have today, which is, I, I, I will say, like, great stuff. Like, the, the stuff that's coming out now, it's it's great stuff. That it's come a long way from this beginning, and I think this journey is fun, and if more people are involved, I think it's for the better. So, yeah, so head on over there. Give us a rating and review. And I'll read out reviews. Any, any cool ones, any bad ones, like, you know, constructive criticism, just want to tell me I'm doing a good job. It's whatever. I think it's fun. So, um, yeah, but until next week, uh, bye.